Greetings ladies and mental gents and welcome to this batch video for the web novel Out of Space taken from the website Royal Road. I hope that you enjoy and if you do, please consider supporting the channel. Chapter 141 Here No Evil Uncharted Forest Look! Norman cried out in surprise as they exited the edge of the forest after days had travelled in the forest, and came up next to a sheer cliff walls of the Sawtooth Mountain. He pointed at a structure seemingly formed from the mountain itself, a fort right out of the face of the mountainside. Lights lit up the side of the mountain and appeared to cast away the night from the fort. Sergeant Eunice grinned, his white teeth a sharp contrast to the grey-black face paint. Welcome to Fort Igus. He gestured to the stunned caravanners as the wagons rolled out one by one to the full view of the stone fort. Norman's eyes widened as they approached the dark, gaping hole that was the gate in front of the fort. He noticed the surface of the walls was smooth and seamless, without any traces of seams or joints. His wagon stopped at the entrance where several similarly dressed warriors without face paint and leaves and twigs stood guard. The stone grey walls had several long slit holes on their surfaces, spread evening amongst the wall and what looked like a thin coils of wires covering the gateway. The barbarian warrior next to him leapt off the wagon and navigated through the strange-looking coils and approached the guards, doing some kind of hand gesture to the head before the one named Eunice walked back and waved them in and suddenly blew out a loud whistle, which made no sense to Norman till his chief guard nudged him and pointed to the rear of the caravans. He turned and looked and was surprised again at the scores of barbarian warriors emerging from the wedge of the forest and into the lights of the cast by the fort, their strange outfits making them difficult to spot amongst the forest foliage. We were guarded by so many barbarians. His guard shrugged. I'm not too sure, but I would expect so if they can fight and kill a bronze boa. Norman was glad that he did not order his men to attack Eunice and his men. If not, his life would have been forfeited long ago by the barbarians surrounding them. He waved for the wagons to start moving forward, wanting to quickly unload the supplies and leave this place. As they entered the gate, Norman was amazed by the strange strips of glowing lights that lit the internal of the fort brightly. He noticed that the walls of the floor were perfectly even and flat, and he wondered how powerful this magic needed to create such a perfect construct inside a mountain. The guards also led them to a huge cavern which was also brightly lit with strips of strange magical lights and were told to unload within the yellow and white lines painted on the floor. Several strange-looking people wearing uniformed grey clothes came up to the caravan and stopped and asked, Hey Sarge, who's the one in charge of this outfit? The barbarian escort jerked his thumb towards Norman, who quickly went down in his wagon to welcome the newcomers. Greetings! I am trader Norman Stone. I represent the North Star Trading. Sure, I'm the quartermaster here. The one they called out the escort replied. He was shorter than the people around him and had jet black hair with slightly slanted eyes. You can call me Chen. Norman suddenly stopped in his tracks as he noticed that the newcomer's ears were round and not long-tipped. The rumors and gossips he heard on the others suddenly came to his mind. These must be the demons that the rebels had sold their souls to. His face turned ashen as he stood several steps away, not daring to make a move, as he stared at the hand offered out when called Chen. Kyuim Chen had held out his hand and felt awkward as the merchant looked frozen in his steps. His face looked pale and his lips were trembling. Are you all right? Uh, um, 
Norman trembled as they saw the short demon coming closer, and jumped when he tapped his back. Ah, boss, are you feeling well? His guard looked at him with a strange look, and Norman noticed him giving a subtle shake of his head. I, I, I'm fine. Norman forced his emotions into control, and gave the forced smile to the short demon. Must be the weather, hot, cold, hot, cold. Yeah, I get that too. Well, take a break if you need to. Kiwim Chen gave a shrug. We just need a few of your guys to do stock-taking. Then we will be out of your hair. Norman nodded hurriedly and made some agreeable noises from his throat and quickly disappeared to the rear of the wagons with his guard. Demons! he hissed in a low voice. We're in a den of demons! Did you see their ears? His guard nodded. But we have to pretend nothing is wrong. If not, we'll only live to see the sun. Norman nodded worriedly, informed the men, tell them to act if nothing is wrong, and work quickly. He ordered his guard, who nodded and left to tell the rest. Guards, please keep us safe. Wallage, a street away from the Prancing Pony Inn. Tyria ran up next to Hitsu and slapped his shoulder, giving him a signal that he was next to him. Hitsu dropped down to one knee and swapped out his empty magazine, while Tyria advanced up firing his M2 with a single shot steadily, at the flickering blue-white magic shield covering the hero. As Tyria reached the girl, he took a knee and with his left hand he checked the pulse of the girl, keeping a steady fire in the hero. She still has a pulse, he yelled at Hitsu who formed up next to Tyria and to the downed girl. Mark, Hitsu saw the burnt and smoking wound on the back of Billy. Her clothes burnt away and the white bones could be seen glistening on the black blood. She looks bad, Young. I need you here now. Got it, Young replied as a squad channel. ETA, five mics. Reloading, Terrier yelled as Hitsu took over the cover fire, spamming shots at the hero, preventing him from doing any action. Oh crap, Hitsu saw the hero start glowing. He's gathering divine power. We need to get out of here now. Go! I got the girl. Tyria yelled as he left his M2 on a sling and grabbed the unconscious girl up from the fireman carry. Go, go, go! The sudden flare of bright light lit up the entire street like day, and the hero in the middle of the eye scorching brightness dashed forward, his right arm drawn back at a punch. Down! Itsu yelled and threw himself down in the way of the hero, while Tyria had dropped flat on the street cradling and protecting the girl as much as he could when he felt the air on his back superheated, up with a flash of light smashed into the gossiping crowd. Wails and screams erupted from the crowd as bodies burned and burst. His skin, turning crisp and smoking into contracted beam of sun and rage, scorched the watching crowd. Tyria concentrated on his manner on his magical barrier as the edges of the beam superheated the surrounding air and baked the steel plate and leather armor on his back. Hitsu, after rolling away, scrambled up to a firing position and fired at the hero, and cursed when he saw the bullets melting as they impacted the hero's sun aura, leaving glowing red liquid dripping down. Fark! The hero, looking like some superhero in a 2D picture movie as Hitsu had watched back at the base, was bathed in a white glow covering his whole body. The hero turned to look directly at Hitsu, who was firing still at the hero, and closed the distance, swinging his arm, trying to punch Hitsu. Crap! Hitsu kicked away from where he was crouching and rolled away, as well as where he was nearly exploded into a smoke and pieces when the hero's punch had landed. These are the times I hate magic. Teria pushed himself up and lifted the girl. Distract him and I'll get the girl to safety. But what? Hitsu yelled as he heard Teria's command in the comms. 
Seriously, no help. Look, Daria snapped as he took the opportunity to run away from the hero who was busy trying to beat Hitsu up into a pulp. Wait one, Loke's voice came back. The crazy son of a witch blew away the building I was in. He climbed up in the rubbles covered from the brick and stone dust from the second floor. God damn it, I really hate magic users. Ain't you one yourself? Doth teased as he and Young appeared around the corner of the street, ignoring the overcooked bodies and the smell of roast meat. Engaging. Sparks of molten lead dotted the hero's body as rounds fired by Doth and Young slammed into him at the side. The hero jerked in surprise, despite the divine power protecting him. The kinetic energy was still transferring into his body, knocking him around. Hitsu took the opportunity and dropped his M2 on his sling and drew a quick his clock and emptied a whole thirty-round magazine into the center mass of the hero, causing the hero to cry out in pain and shock as he raised his hands to block the bullet slamming into him and toppled into the ruins of the wall. Now run! Doth yelled and Hitsu turned without even bothering to check if Hero was dead or if now just took off on his heels. Link, up in the merchant district, Teria's voice came in. We are getting the hell out of here now. Dante coughed and spat out the blood as he laid in the ruins of the brick wall. His divine powers gently ebbed away. The glow from his body died down. He pushed himself wobbly up and spat another glob of blood out of his mouth and rubbed his swollen arms and chest where the strange spells had hit him. He bent down with a wince and picked up a piece of deformed lead and crushed it in his hands. Now this is something new. His cold, hard glaze disappearing replaced by a boyish and charming smile. I haven't bled in over fifty years. He stepped out of the ruins and ignored the cries of pain raising from the wounded and walked back to the new dragon gate inn. Those that hurt him would soon face his wrath, and the Huntress will be able to track those that ran away tonight. Four-Ledge Merchant District Entrance Let's me see, Young went over the wounded girl and placed a hand on the wound. Mind a heal. The cast a healing spell to stabilize her condition and started cleaning up and applying some medicine over the wound. She's stable for now, but it doesn't look so good. We need to get her to the healing house of the proper hospital. Crap. It's cursed. What's now? We find my friend, Teria said. Then we get out tonight. About about her, Hitsu asked, gesturing to the girl under Young's treatment. We bring her along, Teria hesitated before saying. The hero is willing to show his face to kill. She must know something that is able to make that guy go on a killing spree. Damn, Young cursed. I'll prep her for transport. All right, you four stay here and keep watch, thou that maniac. Tyria gestured to Altia, Doth, Taval, and Young to stay. I'll go with Hitsu and Loke to talk to my friend first and get some supplies. Then we move out. Got it. The men nodded and spread out to take up positions to keep the surrounding area under watch. Let's go find Otero and get the hell out of this place. End of chapter. Chapter 142. Speak no evil. UNS Singapore Command Bridge. Blake nodded at the two marine guards as he palmed open the armored blast doors leading to the bridge and stopped the marine from announcing his arrival. He quickly climbed up the steps and stood next to the tactical plot table. What's the situation now? Sir! The officer on watch greeted Blake. Claymore 1 has reported that they are engaged with a hero roughly twenty minutes ago and have just managed to disengage with battle with him. Blake raised his eyebrows in surprise. What happened? I thought the last transmission we had with them was to stay out of the way of the hero. 
Yes, sir, the officer replied, but they found an informant of theirs being chased and attacked by the hero. The hero has attacked anyone in his way in the town to try and kill this informant so far. Blake tapped the table with his fingers before saying, Give me all the info we have on the hero so far. Yes, sir. The officer nodded and started a key into his tablet to bring up all the files they had on the hero, before transferring the data over to Blake's tablet. Blake sat down on his command chair and the officer started to briefing. Date and place of birth unknown, age unknown, previously known location was the capital of Bluewood. Powers appeared to be some blessing of a sun god, giving him supernatural powers and strength. Blake listened on. First seen in the year 71, but multiple sightings and appearances over a period of 150 years. Till this year, 231. Rumors are either he obtained a divine fragment of the sun god, or he was blessed by the sun god himself. Unconfirmed reports that the power was passed to another person, or that the powers granted the usual eternal life. Last known affiliation, unknown, but suspected to be with the Empire of Bluewood. The officer finished his short briefing. That's all the information Intel has gathered from the Empire defectors and the people of Goldrose. Also, almost everyone heard of the hero as a bedtime story. So, we are dealing with an urban myth, folk tale, or a real hero. Hero. Blake pondered. Which of the officer gave a shrug? Sir, it could just be someone who found a godlike powers. Are we still able to contact Claymore 1? Blake asked. Yes, sir. The officer replied, We have them on standby. They are planning to leave the town now and will head towards the location of the freed slaves. They will push the, up the escort mission by one day. Contact them, Blake said. Tell them to use extreme measures to ensure the safety of the team and their informant. The suspect hero is heavily armored and dangerous and is willing to kill in front of so many eyewitnesses. Despite being a hero, their informant must have found out something that is potentially very valuable. Ensure by all means to protect the safety of the informant. Yes, sir. Foreledge, clubs and royals gentlemen club. Terrier ignored the indignant cries of the footman as he barged his way through with Hutsu and Loken Toe, kicking a double rosewood doors open with his booted feet. Stafford, he shoved past another footman who tried to block his entrance and stormed into the main hall of the clubs and royals. The commotion attracted the attention of everyone, and they stared at the black powder-stained, disheveled man armed with a metal wooden pole. His clothes were ripped and dirt-stained, with a hint of urine stench. Arturo looked at his dismay when he recognized the face under the smudge. Arturo! Teria stormed up directly to the pudgy friend, who looked at him with surprise in the face. We need to talk now. Sir, the manager of the clubs and royals arrived, flanked with four large muscular men. We request you leave the premises now. Otero stared at the fierce glint in Tyria's eyes and looked at the manager. Wait, let me talk with him. But sir, this man barged into the club and is violating the laws. The manager exclaimed, he is disturbing all the guests here. It's all right, Otero waved away the manager's concerns. I can vouch for his conduct. Arturo then led Tyria to a private corner, ignoring the indignant manager. What is it? Are you all right? In closer inspection, Arturo saw specks of dried blood in Tyria's clothes and face. What's going on? I'm fine, Tyria brushed off Arturo's concern. We need to move up the transportation of the freed slaves. What? Arturo looked around to make sure no one else was nearby in the conversation. Why? Did the city guards find out? Is that why you're in the state? You know the hero? Terrier asked. He's out in the streets murdering people, and he has targeted one of mine. What? The hero's killing people? 
Otro felt that his news was unbelievable. But he's the hero. How will he want to kill innocent people? I don't care about that now, Tyria said harshly. Tell me where the freed people are, and I will move them out now, tonight. It's getting more dangerous here now. All right, Otro nodded and dug into his pockets, searching for something before he gave an ah, and took out a small runestone. Here. Yeah. This will lead you to the place where they are currently at. Just imbue some of your magic powers into it and she'll show you the way. Tyria nodded and pocketed the runestone. How about your supplies? Is it ready? It should be. We had stored most of the traveling supplies at that place, but we wouldn't have all the wagons and land dragons to move everyone, Otero said. The rest was supposed to come in a day itself, but... It's all right, Tyria said, placing a hand on Otero's shoulder. Thanks, buddy. You'll watch yourself, especially with that hero. He is not what he seems. I, uh, see. Otro nodded and gripped Tyria's hand. You be careful. See you when I see you. With that, Tyria turned and left, and with the other two scruffy-looking adventurers, they left the Club of Royals with the manager and his goons escorting them. Otro stood at the same spot, watching his friend disappear from his view, and a very strange glint in his eyes. Tyria deftly climbed over the low wall, where they had left the rest of the everyone gathered up in an empty courtyard. How's the girl? She's stable, gave her some trank shots. Young replied, she won't feel a thing nor wake up for the next six hours, give or take. Good, Tyria nodded. We're moving out. He tossed a pebble-like object to Altiad. Your own point, put some magical energy into it and it'll lead us to the freed slave's location. Hitsu, help with the girl. Boss. HQ sent new instructions, Darth said. We are to keep the girl alive and safe. She is our number one priority now. The secondary mission is to escort the freed slaves. Got it, Teria said with a nod to everyone. Check your gear and let's move. Altiad hugged the side of a building as he navigated down the street, heading towards the western gate of the town. About the runestone tugging his senses towards that direction. The streets were strangely deserted, with the windows and the buildings were all shut up tightly, barely a sliver of lamplight leaking out. The far distance cries and wails were heard on and off, raising and falling in the maze-like streets, echoing the sounds. Reaching an intersection, he paused and took a quick peek left and right, and young behind him clapped his shoulder before he took over in a low run to the next block of the building across the street. Altiat picked out again and gave a thumbs up, signaling to the rest to move up. They started their dash across the open street, alert for any hostiles. Hitsu carried the unconscious girl on his back, tied up with some rope and a support sling, carrying her like a backpack. They continued in this way until they reached the dark, looming town walls. Peeking out over the hidden corner of the street, Altiat counted five guards. They appeared to be on high alert as they stood watching nervously around them the cries and wails in the distance unnerving them. Knock them out with non-lethal means, Teria whispered, and the five of them, excluding Hitsu, who carried the girl and young, stayed in the shadows. The five Claymore One members quietly crawled their way across the open expanse between the walls and the building that they were hidden next to. They sneaked past a hundred meters or so of open area and crouched next to the walls, the firelight from the burning brazier effectively blinding the guards' night vision as they crowded around it nervously. With barely a sound, the five of them approached as one, looming up behind each suspected guard, and with a quick chokehold, all five were dragged away and knocked out without causing any alarm from the patrolling guards on top of the walls. 
Their unconscious bodies were dumped in a dark shadow zone, and Hitsu and Young rapidly dashed across the open area and hugged against the gate. The heavy bolt was pushed back and the small wooden door built into the huge gates was slowly and carefully opened, to prevent any squeaky hinges from sounding. The group slipped through the open door and closed it before disappearing into the night, heading towards the cover of the forest. Foreledge, New Dragon Gate Inn Dante strolled up the stairs smilingly, ignoring the questions from the innkeeper and his minions and knocked on the room door of where Liz and Evelyn were staying in. After a short while, a sleepy-looking Evelyn opened the door, dressed in a simply frilly nightgown. Dante smiled cheerfully and entered the room, brushing past the groggy huntress. I need your help. Huh? What? Evelyn rubbed her sleepy eyes and flinched from the bright glow of Dante's finger, which lit up the dark room. The sleeping form of Liz got seen snuggled up in the bed covers, giving a soft snooze once in a while. I need you to help me track a few people. Dante said, and he placed his flattened piece of lead on the table. Evelyn headed towards the side of the table and poured some water into a copper basin and splashed her face, before lighting up a table lamp and carrying it to the table where Dante was seated. She put the lamp down and picked up the piece of lead and sniffed it. It also coughed at the stench of the urine that was very strong and a magically enhanced sense of smell. What is this? She held out the lead piece away from her and she rubbed her nose. Are you fine? Evelyn asked as she looked at the rust-stained clothes of Dante. She patted her hair, dusting away some tiny piece of stone. Why are you in such a mess? I'm fine, Dante smiled and gestured to the lead again. How? I should be able to track down who that belongs to, Evelyn said, turning towards the lead and piece table. Dante suddenly reached out and grabbed her and sat her onto his lap, grinning at her surprised, blushing face. We can't! She whispered to Dante. Why not? Dante smiled. Liz is sleeping. As long as you don't make any loud noises, she wouldn't know. But Evelyn wanted to protest, but Dante kissed her deeply, and all thoughts of protest disappeared as her mind went blanked. End of chapter. Chapter 143. Tears of the Sun. Kagar was rudely awakened when she heard the loud bangings and frightened cries coming from outside the shared living quarters. She rolled off the wooden pallet and spied the cracks in the wall panels. She saw several helpers providing food to the people were holding burning torches and gathering at the main gate, which someone or something was banging loudly at. "'What's happening?' someone asked in the room as the people sleeping inside were waking up the dim outside. "'I don't know.' The banging grew louder, and yells and shouts could be heard coming from the gate. Before it burst open, swinging creakily on the rusty hinges, gasps were heard from the helpers who brandished their flaming torches as the intruders barged in. Kagar's eyes widened in fear as she thought that the Empire soldiers had come to arrest them and take them back to slavery. The others, having the same thought, panic and started to flee out of the buildings, hoping to escape the Empire soldiers. But she saw only several dark figures at the gate who entered and closed the gate before the firelight lit up, and they did not dress like any Empire soldier. One of them was even carrying a child on his back. She walked out of the building and came close until she could hear what was housekeeper of the newly arrived men were talking about. Move now! The foremost scruffy-looking male spoke sharply to the housekeeper, whose face was turning pale under the bloodthirsty sight of his eyes. There is no time. Gather all the people and load up the supplies as fast as possible. We need to leave now. But, but, 
the housekeeper sputtered, trying to reason with all the scary-looking men. We do not have enough wagons, and some are still sick, nor are the adventurers escorting them here. It's suicidal to go out there. The Empire is coming, the man angrily hissed. If you stay any longer, everyone dies. The housekeeper paused at the man's angry words. They know. Oh, oh heavens! No, no, quick! She turned around and gestured wildly at his helpers. Wake them all up and get whoever is able-bodied to help load the supplies into the wagons we have now, and hitch the dragons to the wagons too. The helpers, hearing the quickly dispersed and started to call out people, still indoors and also around those who went hiding away. Kagar watched the leader of the fierce-looking group sat down on one of the outdoor branches, and the rest of his party gathered around him. Soon, the whole yard was a hive of activity as workers and ex-slaves started carrying and hoisting sacks of food and barrels of water onto the wagons, while other harnessed the land dragons in a stable and led the sleepy beasts to hitch them onto the wagons. The word had spread that the empire will be coming soon, lit the fire under the ex-slaves, who worked with our complaint and rest, and soon everything that could be loaded up was done. The weak and sick were placed on the remaining empty spaces on board the wagons, while the rest moved on foot. As they headed out into the yard led by the fierce-looking mercenary, who brought news of the Empire's arrival, they hurried along with the wagons, using the dim stars' lit sky to light their way as torches or lamps were forbidden by the mercenaries to prevent the Empire soldiers from spotting them, they said. The camp was so abandoned as the housekeeper and the staff scurried away home, not wanting to be caught when the Empire soldiers came to raid. Dante stepped out of the showered tub and carried Evelyn's exhausted body out of the tub, wrapping them both up in a dry towel. They had returned to Dante's room for another bout of intense lovemaking before showering. Dante casually wiped himself dry and dressed up, before unsheathing his greatsword and used the edge to cut his finger. He then used the blood to draw runes on the surface of the greatsword before imbuing it with his magic powers. Evelyn woke up with some point and watched Dante at his work. Only when he had finished did she snuggle up next to him. How are you feeling? Great, Dante smiled. Get dressed, it's nearly morning. We'll grab some breakfast before we head out. Evelyn nodded and kissed the side of Dante's face before slipping on her nightgown and exiting the room. Dante stood up and gave a few wipes of the sword in the room, making a blood-red afterimage after each swipe, the force of the swipe shaking the room slightly. Finally satisfied, he returned his sword back to the sheath and headed down to the inn for some food. Stab and Liz were surprised that they were moving out so soon as they arrived in town. Dante just casually explained that they were hunting a group of adventurers who were holding a child, and the child was in danger. Liz almost immediately stood up and said, Evildoers, bullying and threatening children, we must stop them. And she almost stormed off, when Stab stopped her by pulling on her robes. Where do you think you're going? Stab sighed. He had heard the commotion that was going on outside during the night when he was having several drinks at the pub a few streets away. He did not think that it was due to Dante trying to save the child and fought against several people that he wasn't victorious. It was almost impossible, thought Stab, as he knew that Dante was one of the strongest fighters he had ever seen. Do you know how to find them in the first place? Liz froze and jerked her robes away from Stab before returning to her seat and buried her blushing face into a mug of hot milk. Don't worry, Dante smiled and patted Liz's head. The fuzzy red head standing out without the usual pointed hat. 
Evelyn has gotten this scent. She can track them easily. Evelyn nodded. As long as it does not rain, I can find their tracks. Good. Everyone full? Dante asked. All right, let's go. After a few hours of tracking and searching, the hero's party arrived before the large camp surrounded by the wooden palisades and a stout gate. Pushing the gates open showed the camp that had been abandoned field to it. The party stayed within the sight of each other and they checked each and every building, finding it empty and the sign showed it was abandoned in a hurry. Looks like everyone left in a hurry, Stabs said as he came out of the last building, shaking his head. No one is home. Dante nodded as he sat on the bench which Tyria and Claymore One had sat on only a few hours earlier. Evelyn. The huntress stood braced on top of one of the roofs of the building, staring out into the tree of seas surrounding them. They left that way, at least nine wagons and dragons, almost three hundred people. She pointed towards the south. Next, she gestured down to the tracks on the ground from the floor to roof. You can roughly see how many different sets of feet there are in the lines drawn by the wagons. I found several sacks of dried rations and some water barrels in the stalls, Stab said, as he joined Dante and Liz on the bench. I think they took what they could and left the rest. This group looks quite big. Are you sure this is the correct people we're supposed to go after? Stab asked Evelyn, who would nimbly climb down the side of the building and joined them. She nodded and indicated to the bench which they were sitting on. I can smell the same scent which Dante gave me to track them with. She bent down and sniffed the wood. No doubt about it, it's the same scent. She rubbed her nose. I thought we were going after a small group of people over a child, but it looks like more than that, Stab said. Could it be some kind of kidnapping racket? Dante gave a good-natured shrug. We'll know when we find them. He turned to look towards the south, his eyes turning cold. Southwest of Foreledge, uncharted forest. Two untidy lines of tired people were walking on the sides of the row of dragons pulled wagons. The lines weaved around the massive roots and disappeared from the view of the forest. Kagar slowly put one foot before the other as her heeled soles on her feet were starting to hurt again, more than half the day's travel. She had rounded a bend and saw the head of the column had stopped and the people gathered around the clearing. Her stomach rumbled when she saw some people starting to take our cooking pots from the wagons and remember the last time they ate was dinner the other day. The people surrounding her saw that the cooking pots were being laid out over cook fires, forgot about their tiredness and pushed themselves faster, dropping down in the green grass when they reached the gathered wagons. Kagar headed to the water barrel, set out with ladles for people to drink and pour mouthful into the parched throat. A middle spring weather made it forest humid and hot making her sweaty and sticky. She wished that there was a river of some to wash up in, and the water barrels were limited and precious. All right, people, listen up. The mercenary from before stood up at the top of the wagons and yelled, I'll form every one of you into teams. Each team will be responsible for one aspect of the workload, be it cooking, driving the wagons, or collecting firewood. There are no maids or servants here, Tyria continued. Everyone has to play their own parts if we are to survive the trek to safety. After getting fed, I want to start organizing every one of you. Now drink more water, get some food and rest. Gagar nodded, thinking that what he said was right, and headed to one of the cook pots where the next slave was stirring some grain porridge with strips of dead meat inside. Several chip bowls were set aside, and Kagar took one and had a cook serve her one big bowl of porridge with some chunks of vegetables and strips of dried meat and started feasting. 
Theria hopped down the wagon and looked worriedly at the rear, where a small group of stragglers were coming in slowly. Crap, this is not good. We have too many people lagging behind. Young stood next to Tyria. If the hero is chasing her, he should have come by now. I don't think we need to worry much about pursuit now. I don't think that SOP will give up so fast, Tyria said. There is only seven of us to guard the rubble of over 300. We can't be everywhere if they are strung out too far back. Hitsu, Lok, and Taval are acting as a rear guard, Young said. They should be able to handle anything that comes their way. I seriously hope so, Tyria grimly said. Yep, the campfires are still warm, Stab dug his fingers into the soil-covered campfires. I say, half a day ahead of us. Dante smiled. We're getting close. He looked up at the sky. It'll be dark soon, but we should be able to catch up with them before the sun sets. Let's go. Liz waved a staff threateningly. I want my bed and a shower. I will make those people that forced me out of here suffer. Dante laughed and patted Liz's shoulder. Get him, we will. Let's go. End of chapter. Chapter 144 some of all fears. Kingdom of Bluewood, Imperial Capital. A tall, muscular, bald elf wearing pure black plate mail over the crest of a twin-tailed scorpion strolled past the featureless lifeguards of the Emperor. His plated boots clanking as he walked down the narrow spiral stone steps and entering into the underground hall. The globes of light moss lit most of the way for him as he pushed the heavy stout wooden door open and entered the stone chamber of horrors. Dozens of tables and wall racks hung naked people of all races, sexes, and ages in various poses of agony. Some had their eyelids cut away and forced to watch the various kinds of torture inflicted on their bodies, while others had their tongues removed. The black, armored self stood before the table filled with instruments of torture and gently removed his plated glove, and slapping them onto the table, ignoring the screams of the condemned. The emperor bent over the wriggling body of Sturm. Eagle spread over a rack with steel bars securing his arms and legs and watched his mage drawing lines of arcane symbols that contorted and distorted the mind. Sturm's mouth was open in agony and dark, bloodied pit of emptiness as his tongue and his teeth were all forcibly removed. His eyelids were also cut away, forcing him to watch the dark mage drawing magic runes on his body and the blood to be sacrificed. Once the hooded mage was done with his art, he bowed to the emperor who smiled and patted Sturm's shoulder in an assuring way. Dear Sturm, well, let this be as enjoyment to me as it is to you. The emperor then turned and nodded to his mage who started to whisper some form of chant which crawled in the inside of the mind if one were to listen to closely. Suddenly Sturm jerked upwards despite the steel bands holding his body. He bent up in an arc thick veins appearing over his head and the body as he contorted in pain and suffering. Underneath his skin, worm-like veins were wriggling all over his body and his body turned red and his temperature went up higher and higher. The emperor tilted his head as he watched in fascination as the changes occurring in Sturm's body. The skin, Sturm, grew taut and the turned dark shiny brown, his muscles growing abnormally while the pupils turned red and sharp teeth grew from the toothless gums. The metal hands holding onto his table and legs creaked and strained as Sturm struggled to grow in suffering. Finally, after a turn of the glass, Sturm slumped down back onto the rack, his lidless eyes staring blankly at the stone ceiling while his chest rose up and down as his body changed to almost twice the actual size. 
The emperor clapped his hands happily as the mage bowed and gestured to the experiment as a success. Well, at least you can be useful in even if you have failed me after all. He turned to the newcomer and smiled. What do you think? The bald knight just gave a raised eyebrow and looked and said, Won't know till he goes into the battlefield. Ah, my esteemed mage here assures me that his... The emperor gestured at the chained sturm on the rack. Bronze men are more capable than our knights, one of them equating ten knights in strength and resistance. Normal swords and spears can barely penetrate the bronzed bodies. The bald knight shrugged and repeated, still have to see their performance on the battlefield. <laughs> the emperor laughed. Then he's all yours, since you caught him and brought him back to me. How's the situation at the border? The bald knight just gave a casual nod. Not good. The two nations had allied up with the resisting rather strongly, but your bronze men are still tough, disclaimed. We should be able to force a breakthrough before winter. And the rebels? The emperor stabbed the unmoving body of Sturm with a dagger. How do you plan to deal with them? I've sent the hero down to deal with it first, the black knight replied. The priority now is a two-nation alliance. The hero should be able to deal with them. If not after we crush the two nations, we can easily divert all our attention to the south once we unite the new land. Good. The emperor looked at the skin and sturm where he had stabbed the hard dagger, yet there was barely a mark to be seen. I will be sending the bronze men to have uh, to be under your command. The black knight nodded. I'll make preparations for departure as soon as possible. Please send the bronze men to the black scorpion legion barracks. The knight then gave a bow and departed from the stone chamber. Don't fail me, Rock, the emperor advised at the disappearing back of the knight and smiled at his mage. Now, who's next? He rubbed his hands together with glee. Uncharted forest, 479 kilometers from the Sawtooth Mountain Path. Go, go, go! Terria yelled as he fired at the approaching blue-coated soldiers mounted on dragons. He pushed the frightened ex-slaves as he aimed the charging dragons his single shot snapping the soldiers off their saddles. Come on! Aldeard helped one of the fallen ex-slaves up from the ground and urged the rest to run faster. Where the hell did these blue boys come from? I have no idea. Doth yelled over the dim of gunfire as he crouched next to the tree root and fired single shots at the dragon cavalry. I thought we were dealing with the hero guy only. Unknown to Claymore One, the hero and his party had managed to track the escaping slaves and Dante sent Stab back to Forledge to the garrison to bring reinforcements. Stab had shown the garrison and showed a letter of the garrison commander, who immediately, after reading it, turned pale and followed all instructions given by Stab. It took the garrison's cavalry three days to catch up with the hero and his party, who followed behind the convoy as they took the opportunity to attack the ex-slaves when they stopped to set up camp. Go! The men of Claymore 1 held the rear and proceeded in tactical withdrawal, buying time for the non-combatants to escape. Due to their firepower, they managed to stall and even led a pursuing cavalry into an ambush which decimated more than half of their number. Doth! Teria yelled, you've gotten in contact with HQ. He dropped down behind a massive tree root and replaced his empty magazine with a fresh one. Negative, Doth yelled back of the tree further down the line. Too much interference from the trees. Damn, Teria cursed as he patted his ammo pouch and found he had barely two magazines left. Try harder, find high ground. He yelled back to Doth, who nodded and dashed off somewhere. Ammo status, Teria yelled to the rest. 
Two mags, three for me. Same, three here. Crap, at this rate we need to go melee. Tyria cursed to himself, and the damn hero hasn't even shown his face yet. Save the last two mags for the hero and his party, Tyria ordered. Switch to melee against the blue boys. Suddenly, a war cry roared out of the dozens and dozens of soldiers as they charged across the trees to close in with Claybor 1. Charge! Deria dropped his M2 and drew his longsword, stepping over the roots of the tree that he was at and skewered a charging blue-coated soldier right in the chest. The boyish feature of the soldier's eyes widened in shock as he crumbles down while Tyria barely gave a second glance at the dying soldier. Hitsu raised a palm up and the two blue magic circles appeared and a crack of lightning flared out, followed by a strong smell of ozone and burned meat as he blasted the enemy soldiers. He blocked the spear thrust and grabbed the spear and jerked the surprised soldier holding the spear towards him and impaled his sword bayonet into the surprised soldier. Teva leaned against the tree roots and calmly fired his M2 at the charging soldiers. At a short distance, he barely missed. Each shot dropped a blue-coated soldier. Altied did the same, popping single shots into the enemy, providing cover for the rest. Young and Lok were leading and escorting the escaping slaves while the rest held the rear, treading spells and gunfire, and just as suddenly as it happened, it was over. The Empire soldiers were either dead or dying. The small battlefield was littered with dead and dying. Grab whatever is useful, Terry ordered. Five minutes, then we retreat. The men quickly went forward and started to loot the bodies of the Empire soldiers, picking up swords, water skins, dried rations, and even heating items. They gathered the weapons and retreated, leaving behind broken bodies. They managed to catch up with the ex-slaves and handed out weapons and supplies to them as they had run away when attacked, leaving behind most of their supplies and food and water. I think the hero is purposely draining our strength before he'll show himself. Young spoke as he applied some medical paste onto a sword cut on Tyria's arm. At this rate, without supplies, we will be cut down one by one. Damn, Tyria looked like frightened and exhausted ex-slaves. How many made it? I did a roll call earlier. Young replied as he bandaged up the wound. 232 of them, roughly 110 people are missing or lost. Crap, Daria flexed his bandaged arm and grimaced. Doth, did you manage to contact HQ yet? I'm still trying. Doth was perched on the top of a tree branch, the radio headset covering his ears while he fiddled with dials on the radio. No go. Keep trying. If you manage to get HQ, tell them that we needed a dust off, ammo and supplies, Daria ordered. Hitsu, find out who can fight and will know how to use a sword. Teria ordered next. Issue out swords that we got from the Empire. Hitsu nodded and started yelling at the ex-slaves who were huddled together. Taval, check our total ammunition amount, Teria said next to Taval. Redistribute the ammo evenly out. A smallish girl with white hair and fluffy ears suddenly stood before Teria and looked up in surprise. Yes, can I help you? I can help, the cat girl said. I, I know how to fight with magic. My name is Kaga. Kagar Whitetail. Thanks. Teria smiled at the cat girl who could barely reach his chest height and looked like 18 or 16. Then I'll like you to help protect the women and children. But I know magic, Kagar protested. I can help kill the Empire soldiers. Teria shook his head, wondering what is happening in this world where women and children have to fight and kill to just to live. It's all good, he assured the cat girl. I'm sure your magic powers are very strong, but I'd rather need you to protect the rest. Hitsu came up for the first time and cleared his throat. Boss, I got about 40 men and women here who know how to use swords. Okay, gather them together, 
Tyria stood up and rubbed his head with a cackle, who frowned. Go look after the rest. Just as Logial from his vantage point. Contacts! Logial from the tree as he was in. He spotted more blue coats moving amongst the trees. They're about five, ten minutes away. Go! Tyria gestured to Kagar, towards the rest heading towards where Hitsu was gathered, with the slaves that knew how to handle the sword. Protect the rest for me, okay? He left Kagar, who stood there staring at him with tears forming in her eyes. Come on, it's a good day to die. End of chapter. Chapter 145. Rearguard. Clashes of steel and iron rung out amongst the trees where two groups were fighting. On one side, men and women dressed in simple woven tunics and trousers, while the other group were soldiers in blue coats and plate mail. Grunts and curses accompanied each swing and stab of the sword as both sides fought to overwhelm each other. Tyria flung a ball of fire into the group of soldiers who raised their shields to block, only to get their shield shattered away and the bones breaking from the explosion. He patted a swing from another blue-coated soldier and hammered his dull blade onto the armored pauldron of his opponent, barely denting it. But it made his opponent curse in pain, and Tyria smashed the half-helm of the soldier with a reverse slash, sending the shocked soldier tumbling over to the forest undergrowth. God damn it! Tyria dropped the blunt bend of the blade and quickly drew his glock out of his fire at the fallen soldier. He stepped back from the fight and took a quick check of his surroundings, taking note that his own guys had fired the blue-coated soldiers who were overwhelming the slaves. Tyria took a quick breather and reholstered his pistol before grabbing the abandoned axe spear from the ground and charging at one of the enemies who engaged in a couple of slaves. He rammed his spear with all his body weight into the side of the unaware soldier, the edge tip punching through the side plate mail leather covers and into the guts, sighting a dying man scream from the soldier. He pulled out and swiped the spear around, giving some breathing space to the two clearly exhausted and wounded slaves. The fighting had been brutal and dirty. The three trees had forced the fighting into pockets of small conflicts. The remaining two Empire soldiers stared out with hate-filled eyes from their eye slits as their helms at Tyria as he kept the spear between them. Tyria sighed and suddenly reversed the spear at a stabbing it into the ground before whipping out his pistol and gave each of the surprised soldiers a shot before he picked up the spear again. Grab their shields and replace any swords or weapons with dulled edges, he instructed the two slaves behind him. Quickly now! The two wounded slaves quickly dashed forward and grabbed the fallen weapons and equipment on the ground, while Tyria kept a watch around them. Get down! He suddenly yelled when he felt goosebumps rising on his skin and he dropped flat. The two slaves were slower and they paused, turning to see what was the problem when a dozen bolts of energy blew up the area around them. Tyria rolled away to the side until he reached the cover of a tree root, while the area he was before was smoking with bits of bark and flesh raining down. As the smoke cleared, both slaves were down, parts of their bodies were missing and smoldering from the effect of the spells. <laughs> A childish girl's voice could be heard laughing. Die, you evil man! You know, power of I, Liz, the greatest mage ever. A petite-sized girl appeared several meters away, perched on top of a tree root. She waved her staff and posed, all the while laughing to herself. What the fuck? Tyria peeked over the side of the scene. Damn, kid is crazy. 
He turned back to cover and unslung his M2, and slowly leaned out while prone, raising the rifle sights on the crazy girl who had started chanting to prepare the cast spells. He lined up to rear of his front sights and directly at the center mass and squeezed the trigger twice. The painful slam of rifle butt against his shoulder felt comforting, like an old friend. Both bullets slammed into the girl mage. The impex barely shattered her magic shield, but was enough to break her concentration and her spells and also knocked her off the tree. Ah! The crazy witch, Tyria spat, eat lead! He quickly rose from his position and weaved through the trees. Fall back, fall back! The hero's party members have returned to the show their powers, and would mean that the hero would soon act. Come on, people, back! UNS Singapore Command Bridge. More one. Estra four. Ent under. Attack by her and emp four. A choppy transmission burst into the broadcasted into the headphones of the radio operator. Repeat. Ni sat. Now. Exo, the radio operator yelled, urgently waving for Commander Four to come over. I'm picking up a transmission with Claymore 1 identifier. The signal is very garbled up, but it will appear that they are in trouble. Let me hear. Ford leaned over the comms panel and held the offered headset to his ear, listening to the playback. Crap, get me the captain. Commander Tommy and Major Frank on the line now, but meet in the command chair. Yes, sir. The female operator quickly punched the call to the captain and the Air Force and the Marine commanders to the command chair of the bridge, which Ford quickly sat on. Captain, Ford greeted Blake and gave a nod to Tommy and Frank when they all locked onto the call. Got a situation again. Claymore 1 has appeared to be under attack. Permission to engage retrieval protocols. Blake nodded. Do it. I'll be in my office in. He glanced at the digital timer at his side. Ten minutes. Brief me what's going on there. Tommy, grab the birds. Frank, get your boys loaded and ready to move. Yes, sir, the man acknowledged an order and left the chat. Sawtooth Mountain Air Base, Valkyrie Hangar 1. The old support base was rebuilt and refurbished to be an air base for the planes, dragons, and air force. Inside the brightly lit hangar, a single boxy-looking craft was nestled into the four landing gears and a large crew of technicians, elves, humans, and even a few goblins dressed in various color-coded vests worked over overalls swarmed the craft. Come on! Chief Gale yelled at his crew as they serviced the craft. Move those rears of yours, load the extra fuel canisters, remove all the external armor plating. He stood over the crew as they labored with the power tools, unbolting huge plates of armor plating from the bird. Two goblins wearing oversized ear mufflers, a black hockey-like helmet, and a green vest over the thick-sized overalls pushed a trolley laden with massive fuel tank pod. They both eagerly scampered across the hangar and parked the trolley on the color-coded box drawn on the floor, handing over the crew with a yellow vest. Chief Gale kept a wary eye on the goblins as they scampered back happily to the elevators that led to the underground storage to pick up a second load of fuel tanks, shaking his head. Damn, never would I thought that I would have goblins under my watch. Chief, Light Lieutenant Peter walked into the hangar, with his flight helmet held roughly under his side. How's everything? So far, so good, Chief Gale replied. Just those two goblins give me the creeps. He unconsciously patted his side arm to make use of it there. But I heard that they are pretty handy on maintenance, Peter said as he watched the two goblins giggling away as they pushed a fuel pod out of the elevator. They seem so happy, and eager too. Yeah, 
I hope they don't turn on us, Chief Girl said. Those creatures seem to worship technology. They have been praying to the planes, calling it some kind of machine god. He rubbed his head in a headache, sudden to threaten to pop out. Gods, I'm getting too old for this crap. <laughs> Peter laughed cheerfully. I still remember when they first saw the Valkyrie. They all bowed down and prayed. And later they found out that you're the chief of all the planes. They started to worship you as the chosen one of the machine gods. <laughs> Not funny, Lieutenant. Chief Gale rolled his eyes. Not funny at all. Great Chief Gale, the two goblins skipped over and saluted. We complete a great mission, need more mission. Ah, Chief Gale sighed. Once the fuel pods are loaded, return the trolleys back. Yes, Great Chief. They gave a salute again and ran off happily. Mission accepted. Peter laughed again and gave a salute to Gale and half-jogged to his bird while mimicking the voice of the goblins. Great Chief Gale, I go for mission now. Our soul. Chief Gale cursed at his back as laughing Peter. Damn, I hate goblins. Uncharted Forest, 469 kilometers from Sawtooth Mountain Pass. Kagar panted hard as she helped out support one of the injured slaves as they half ran in the forest. She kept her eyes on the back of the mercenary that was a strange weapon and ignored the pain from the healed blisters from opening again. Only two of the mercenaries were with them, whilst the rest were as rear, setting their lives for them to escape. Suddenly, the mercenary at the front stopped in his tracks and raised his clenched fist. Kagar was confused, but she stopped as she watched the mercenary turn his head left and right, as if he had sensed something. She was about to ask when the mercenary suddenly spun around right and brought up his strange metal wand, and thunder and fire erupted from the tip of it. Despite witnessing the effects of the strange magic weapon that they were carrying, the loudness and suddenness were all of the shocking to everyone, including Kagar. She flinched and instinctively ducked down, but her eyes never left the mercenary as she continued to cast a spell after spell with a thunderstick in his hand. Doth jerked to his right and sensed an intense killing aura from his right. He smoothly raised his M2 and fired at the glow that was approaching and saw sparks exploding off a magic shield. Damn, is that the hero? He cursed his luck that he had been held his ground. Young, we got company. He tracked the inhumanly fast movement of the glowing hero, firing at him as if he weaved in and out of the trees for cover. Despite that, Doth's majority of his shots managed to hit the hero, forcing his speed to drop as the force of the bullet stunned him slightly. Son of a witch! Doth yelled as he stepped back while firing at the rapidly closing-in hero. Suddenly... He felt a chill, a premonition of death behind him, and his instincts told him to duck. He dropped to the side, and a silver flash came from behind. Fark you! He crashed down on the undergrowth, just as someone attempted to backstab him. His left shoulder took the brunt of the attack and bleeding, but he ignored the pain and turned his M2 at the attacker and fired blank point. Stab cursed his rapier, missing his target, only meaning to inflict a light cut on the guard's shoulder. He was very curious as the weapons the guards were using and knew that these were the rebels that had been assigned some pact with demons to possess such powerful artifacts. He knew that they were very dangerous. That was why he and the hero decided to attack from both sides. With the glow of the hero and his distraction, he would slip into the darkness and reappear behind the guards to backstab them while they are distracted by the hero. But he did not expect to be noticed. He had erased all of his presence, but how did he get found out?
Just as his thoughts were racing in his mind, the guard rolled over and pointed the thunderstick artifact at him, and the world turned to flames and thunder. Doth emptied the remaining magazine into the slim, bony-looking male, his shots unable to miss due to the very short distance. He saw the bloody body tumble down as the protection spells on him failed to end the bullets ripped through the assassin. How'd you like that, witch? End of chapter. Chapter 146 Your Mama Sawtooth Mountain Air Base Two military half-tracks rolled up to a stop next to the runway, where the two Valkyries were winding up their turbines in standby. The loaded troops of the rear hopped off one by one and formed up next to the two boats for inspection. The newly minted First Lieutenant Joseph Token, formerly Lord General of the Kingdom of Goldrose, grinned in anticipation of the upcoming mission and stood before the gathered platoon with a gleam of excitement in his eyes. All right, men of the 2nd Battalion, Eagle Company, Platoon 1. Most of you know me before you joined the Marines. Now I am also part of the Marines, like you. Joseph roared over the sounds of the engines. Now we got a problem. He pointed in the far distance over the mountains. We got our buddies trapped beyond the pass, and we are going to save them. Slaves escaped from the hands of the Empire of being slaughtered. We all got our duty to do. Joseph clenched his fist. Gold Rose might be destroyed, but now we have a new role to play as protectors of the weak. Hoorah! The platoon echoed loudly. Hoorah! Mount up, Joseph gestured towards the Valkyries. Section 1 and 2 on board Valkyrie 1, 3 and 4 on Valkyrie 2. Is your ride? Go, 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 go! The heavily armed marines lit up and dashed towards the waiting Valkyries, which rear cargo bay ramps were down and what appeared to be a goblin wearing a dark green Air Force overalls and a helmet and aviator glasses was waving them on board, much to the surprise of the boarding marines. The fuck? The marines were confused as they looked at the goblin, who screamed at them in a high-pitched voice to sit down and buckle up. Buckle up, you dumb marnies! The single goblin crew cried, Dumb marnies want to die in pieces of flying bucket of bogotly bolts! The stunned marines on board Valkyrie 1 sat obediently onto the buckle seats lining on the walls of the aircraft. A massive pallet of supplies was secured in the middle of the deck, with what appeared to be a vehicle of some sorts. Greg? All clear? The elven crew chief hopped in from the side hatch and sealed the side hatches. Check, all cargo has secured. Checking! The goblin named Greg bounced happily from one seat marine to another, tugging on the constraints and grinning evilly as he pulled the straps tightly, making the marines groan. Nice and tight, wrapped up nicely. <laughs> oh my god. The marines prayed as the rear cargo ramp closed up. Are we going to fly with the crazy goblin? Hey, greenskin, some marine yelled. You want to lick clean my boots? The Marnies believe I dump you out of the plane without a choo-choo. The flight lieutenant Tommy grinned as he heard the commotion in the rear of the comms. Cargo, all green. His crew chief said before cutting off the tirade between the Marines and Air Force as his crew chief ended comms. Valkyrie 1 to Mother, Tommy radioed into the flight control tower. One is all green, standing by for takeoff, over. Valkyrie 2 to Mother, all green, ready to take off, over. Mother to Valkyrie flight. Mission is a go. Godspeed, gentlemen. One, Roger. 
Tommy applied power to the turbines of the heavy aircraft, slowly rose to the powerful rotor turbines in the air effect under the craft, and gently tilted his Valkyrie nose towards the pass. And with Valkyrie 2 behind, the two rotorcraft flew off from the airbase. Uncharted forest 468 kilometers to the Sawtooth Mountain Pass. Marry her up, a young beardy managed to cast a magic protection spell just as the hero slammed his sword just meters before him, causing an energy shockwave to slam into his barrier. He snapped, he's fired his M2 and glowing hero, who barely flinched from the impacts of the bullets as his aura of the sun god melted the lead bullets before the impacting him. Fark! The hero grinned and slashed down with a greatsword, which smashed the crevice several meters long on the forest floor, and splitting the ancient tree in two at the end of the slash. Each step of the hero left the ground smoking and burning from the intense strength of his aura. Young rolled flat on his tummy, managing to dodge the slash, but the glancing force of the slash almost overloaded his magic protection spells. God damn it! Some help, Doth! Darth fired from the flanks, but the effects were the same. He barely doubt any damage to the hero. This son of a witch is not taking damage. <laughs> you dumb peasants! The hero suddenly paused and smiled at the two men. The first fight was your strange weapons. I have already known the secret behind them. It's so easy to counter it. As long as I encase myself with a burning aura strong enough to melt the stones that come out from your thunder sticks. So why don't you stay still and die for me? Dante gave a sunny smile with the two soldiers. He turned and looked at the slumped body of Stab and sighed. It's hard to find good help these days, and you just gotta kill the good ones. Yeah, and your mama's so fat. Doth sneered from behind the cover, treat and reloaded. That the monsters hide their food when they see her. Young quickly took the time and scampered away with a better position. Seriously, trash talk at a time like this? The aura from the hero suddenly flared up. What did you say? The white glow turned pale blue, and the heat of his aura dropped. Well, it's working, Doth yelled. Hey, Farker, your mama's so stupid that I told her she lost her mind. She went on a quest looking for it. The temperature in the devastated forest dropped, and the sharp chill cut into both Doth and Young as the hero glared at them. You speak ill of my mother. Damn it, now he's pissed. Young rolled his eyes and readied his spell. Well, at least it's better than seeing that fake smile. You dare speak ill of my mother? The hero roared as a shockwave burst out from his body. The fall smashed away the remaining trees and soil, sending both the soldiers back into cover from the fly debris. Fire! Young and Doth yelled at the same time as they both leaned out of cover and fired at the threw spells at the hero. Lightning bolt! Magic missile! The bullets and spells slammed into the hero, causing him to step back for a moment. Doth and Young thought they finally managed to get some damage in, but the hero suddenly spun to the side, dodging the rest of the bullets and charged towards Doth's position. What the? Doth yelled in fright as he saw the crazy fast speed that the hero was going, almost another level faster than before. He quickly dropped down on his back and whitewashed blue beam slammed into where he had been under cover. The tree exploded, and he felt his tactical vest ripping apart from the force of the hero's passage. Run! Young yelled as he fired at the fleeing figure of the hero. He led his target and fired, casting smoke and sparks and erupting on the body of the hero. We can't solo him! Back! Young reached into a pouch and ripped out a flashbang. 
He jerked the pin out and tossed it, underhanded into the path of the hero, and turned tail and ran. The sharp crunch and sound burst of light sent the hero screaming as his senses were all dialed up to three times the normal person's sensitivity. Yeah, take that, witch, Doth planted as he ran, holding out his chest. God damn it. You're all right, Young came up next to Doth and gave him a palm for support. No, I think the Fokker got me some, Doth panted. My insides feel like crap now, and the radio's trashed. Young did not say anything else but just supported Doth as much as he could, as they ran deeper into the forest, leaving behind the cries and screams and pain and anger. Loke cursed as he dodged just in time as an arrow slammed into the spot where he was against just a second ago. That damn archer is good. He quickly leaned out and lined up his scope into the moving shadows of the trees and fired. The archer dropped just as the bullet was about to hit her as the grace of Loke was impressed. Damn! Loke worked his bolt of his M1, and the two of them continued to exchange fire between each other. Crazy witch, girl, Hitsu yelled as he dived for cover for the fifth time as the area he was hiding in exploded from multiple magic missile strikes. Gonna spank you. He leopard crawled away from where the tree roots and fired at the angry-looking mage girl hovering over half of the destroyed terrain. Eat lead. The bullet slammed into the shield of the girl mage who yipped in pain and started to weave left and right, trying to dodge his shots. Sparks and smoke trailed the crying girl mage as she tried to dodge all the bullets. <laughs> How do you like that now? Hitsu yelled as he fired at the prone and suddenly his weapon locked. He did a quick check and found that the bolt had jammed, most likely from overfouling the barrel from black powder ammunition. Oh, crap. The girl mage stopped and glared at him, laying at the edge of the destroyed forest. She panted and said, You! You evil man! Even cute little girls like me! You dare bully me! Ha 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 ha! slowly backed off, trying to find some cover. Well, you didn't get hurt, did you? You! You evil man! The girl mage, tear-stained face, cried out angrily, I shall punish you! She raised her staff and five circles started to manifest in front of her, aimed directly at Hitsu. Magic! M -m oh, come on! Hitsu lamented and he quickly sprinted off to the side and dived down to the slight depression in the forest floor, just as the spell was completed. Missile times three hundred! And Hitsu hugged himself and screamed like a little girl as the world around him exploded. Diria jerked his head up, and the ground suddenly shook as he saw a mushroom-like cloud appearing, followed by a rumbling sound that grew louder and louder. Brace yourselves! A shockwave and dust cloud suddenly slammed into them, sending the weaker Empire soldiers and slaves tumbling away. Diria and the rest quickly took the opportunity to dispatch away the downed soldiers. What was that? Who's missing? Tyria asked, as finally there were no more soldiers that remained standing. Where's Loke and Hitsu? I think they were that way. Altier pointed to the west where the smoke and cloud came from. Crap. Travel, take charge of the slaves and head to the rendezvous point. Tyria quickly ordered. Altier, with me, let's go. That both Tyria and Altier sprinted off towards the direction of the explosion. After a short distance, they found a large fan-like portion of the forest missing. Three tree trunks were blown away leaving behind jagged remains of roots and dozens of large creatures on the forest floor. Spread out and keep alert, 
Tyria ordered as they approached the center of the destruction carefully. The only area unaffected stood the girl, mage leaning against her staff, her soldiers heaving up and down as she panted. Tyria gave a look at Altiot, who nodded and crept up to the unsuspecting girl, and spacked the back of her neck, knocking her out easily. What the hell happened here? Tyria asked. Where the hell is Loke and Hitsu? Suddenly a crack of a piece of wood spun the men around, with their weapons aimed at the direction of the sound. Hey guys! Loke walked into the destroyed land with a figure slung over his back. All good? You look like crap, Altiot commented as he gestured to the wound on Loke's shoulder. A stub of a broken arrow was stuck there, which Loke just dropped the body of a female archer down without any care to the ground. Hurts like fark. Now, where's Hitsu? End of chapter. Chapter 147 The Cavalry Has Arrived Skies over the uncharted forest. All right, everyone, listen up. First Lieutenant Joseph spoke over the intercom linking both Valkyrie's passenger holds. We'll be dropped into the uncharted forest in support of the distress call from the 101st. Our objective is to find and support the mission, which is to escort a large group of freed slaves back to Hell's Gate. Intel has it that they are doing fighting withdrawal with the Empire forces and also the hero and his party. Joseph announced, which the Marines started mumbling amongst themselves when they heard the hero was involved. I know most of you have heard the hero's exploits, but this time the hero is with the Emperor's side, Joseph added. Our mission is to prevent the freed people from being captured or killed by the enemy. Simple as that. There is no point in thinking of why the hero is helping the Empire or who is attacking. Just know one simple thing, that is to ensure the safety of the civilians. Sir, yes, sir, the Marines cried out. Good, Joseph grinned at the hot-blooded Marines. We will be dropping in the nearest emergency rendezvous point and work our way towards the last known location. Following that, Eagle Company, Platoon 2, 3, and 4 will be dropping in at intervals with extra supplies, depending on the local situation. All right, ETA is 49 minutes on LZ. Grab some shut-eye while you can. It's going to be a long walk home. Uncharted Forest, 467 kilometers from the Sawtooth Mountain Pass. Come on, Young whispered to the faltering slave, reaching out a helping hand to hold the weakened slave to the hollow of the tree. Stay quiet. He passed out the last bottle of water and carefully climbed his way over the tree root. Boss, Young lowered himself down onto the ground. We're running out of food and water. The survivors are all spent both physically and mentally. The food and water scavenged from the dead Empire soldiers were mostly spent on the original supplies and wagons were mostly abandoned when they were attacked suddenly, while others lost along with the frantic escape. Tyria looked up in Doth's cold body and gently covered his face with a dirty cloth inside. I know, we managed to get ahead of the hero so far. I think, with our wards up, we should be able to hide from him for a while. We should be roughly two to three hours away from the rendezvous point, Alti had said, as he kept Compass stone back on his pocket. Regular Compass does not work in the properly uncharted forest, requiring instead the use of a Compass stone a magic rune imprinted with a host location, and it would point in the correct direction when the magic was used on it. Young, gather some people and still have energy. See if you can find some water source to refill our water, Terea ordered. Look, take a few men with you too. Go see if you can forage some food. 
Loke nodded, looking depressed as they couldn't even find any traces of Hitsu in the aftermath of the battlefield. He turned silently to the young follower behind him, patting his shoulder as both of them went to gather volunteers. Tyria gave out a long breath and continued his task of wrapping Darth's body up securely. During his training, they were taught to never leave a man behind, and he wasn't going to leave Darth's body behind. Finally, finishing, what remained was a shroud of body wrapped in cloth and secured tightly in the vines collected from the forest. He looked up to see the two bound captors staring wide-eyed at him. The younger girl was glaring at him, a glare that could kill. Those eyes would be stabbing him to death. She gave a muffled mmm, and her gagged mouth was struggling against the bonds that prevented her hands and legs from moving. Even her fingers were tied to prevent her from drawing the runes with the magic seals. The other female archer, or huntress, was similarly bounded and gagged, but she just sat there calmly and watched everything that was happening calmly. And to Tyria, he felt that she was just waiting for the hero to come at any time. Her belief in the hero was very strong, that she felt that it was a matter of time only. Tyria and Taval had drawn a magic seal around the two girls, in case they had some magical tracking that the hero could use to track them. So far, the fighting hero had cost them two members a claymore one. Doth had suffered a serious internal injuries, and even healing spells, potions, nor even the super-magical technology of the humans could even save him, while Hitsu was MIA, fighting the girl mage. But looking at the end result of the devastated battlefield, there was a very high chance that Hitsu was dead, blown to pieces. Capturing two of the hero's party members in exchange for two deaths in the team, Tyria clenched his fist angrily, wishing that he'd rather had two of his men back at having such an exchange. Now his plans to use the two girls as hostages against the hero, hoping to use them to force the hero off their backs. He gave the last pat of the improvised body bag and left, unwilling to spend another minute more in front of the people who'd caused the deaths of his men. Uncharted Forest Rendezvous Point the tilt of the rotors of the Valkyrie One whined loudly as the craft hovered slightly off the riverbed, and the rotor washed sending the sprays of ice-cold water into the air as the tail ramp splashed open. Go kick butt, dumb mum knees. I'll kick ass, the marines hollered back at the goblin, who rolled his eyes dramatically behind his aviator glasses. Move, move, move. The men of the 2nd Battalion Eagle Company, Platoon 1, leapt down from the ramp and fanned out, forming a security cordon as the goblin roiled the crates of supplies off the bird. A mighty splash and a digital camo-coated four-legged creature landed. It looked like a crab with the four legs and two stubby arms, ending in four-finger claws and a tiny round head mounted at the area while the crab will have its head. Once all the marines and supplies were offloaded, Greg yelled into the intercom, Chief, dumb manny's all gone, closing door. And he snapped the big red button at the rear hatch closing. Ooh, big red buttons. Greg like very much. <laughs> the spider tank swiveled its head left and right as it absorbed information of its surroundings as it noted the departure of the Valkyries. Its body was four meters long and two meters wide, standing over a meter tall. Armor plating made from the spider ant shells covered its body parts, and while the wolf leather protected the joint area. Amanasagi, Private One Tooth, aka Slow, called the spider golem nicknamed Asagi due to the initials painted on the side of the golem, ASASG01, which represented Armored Support Autonomous Spider Golem. 
The spider tank, hearing its name, turned around on its legs and came trotting over and stood before Slow, who patted it, and it stood there with awaiting its instructions. The sagis were newly created by the pair working in ordnance. A motherboard was installed with a 512 terabyte silicon chip with millions of lines of code as a sort of pseudo-AI was fused with the mana stone in its brain. Its veins were lined with magic formations, and its heart was powered by a refined dragonite ore, while its muscles were made of stone. It worked autonomously, but were coded to follow instructions of the ranking marines and its partner, which slow drew the short straw. He was at first confused and frightened by it, but soon found it a faithful partner, and at times like a puppy wind wolf. The two humans who made it told him to think of it like a dog or a puppy, and it was just born and still learning, just as he was learning about being a marine. Lo whistled to the rest of his platoon, and they started to carry the crates of supplies over the stack them onto the back of the spider tank, who obediently lowered its joints to allow the marines easier access to its back. All right, let's move out, Lieutenant Joseph ordered. Once the men were ready, they were two spider tanks and two all-terrain rovers, built specifically for use in the forest. The men spread out as they headed into the forest, with the rovers following in a slow pace behind, while the spider tank strolled casually along. Slow rolled up the long antenna of his radio set carefully to prevent it from tangling up with the trees, as the radio set was mounted on the side of a sagi. Good girl, stay, he patted the side of the spider tank, who seemed to enjoy it, and tied up the antenna. Once done, he grabbed the hang bars in the rear and stood up on the ladder step. All right, let's go. The spider tank, hearing his command, started to crab its way forward, easily climbing over the tree roots, while Slow hung on tightly to the slightly rough side. They were being travelling for more than an hour, trying to raise a hundred and first on the radio, but there was no response, so they could only continue pushing forward, hoping to get in touch with the missing team. Suddenly, echoes of gunfire rolled over the way in Slow's ears, and the forest burst into a frenzy of activity as bird verums called out angrily from the sudden loud thunders. Uncharted forest, 467 kilometers from Sawtooth Mountain Pass. Go! Terry yelled as a hero suddenly appeared without a warning, his glowing body carrying his great sword slashed through anything in his ways, be it trees or slaves, cutting them down without hesitation. Stop him! By time for the rest to run! Terrier yelled as he dragged the two bounded girls out. Young, Altiot, take point. Young nodded and helped lift the body back up onto Altiot's shoulder, and they took off with the rest of the panicking slave. Altiot tossed the last remaining few magazines before he left, and Terrier grabbed them, shoving them into his empty magazine pouches. Stop! Terrier yelled at the hero who dropped the two girls and ripped off the gags. Or they die! He drew his clock and aimed it at the two sputtering girls. My hero! Kill him! The girl maid screamed and spat. Evil man! The hero stopped his attack and stood half surrounded by the remaining members of Claybor One. Their guns aimed at him, waiting for his response. Dante looked at the two girls laid bound at his feet and ragged-looking mercenary. Where is the girl? What girl? Terrier feigned ignorance, knowing full well who he was referring to. Ain't both of them here? He gave a kick to the loudmouthed gold mage, making a curse his whole line of families and their neighbors. No, you know full well who I'm referring to. 
Dante smiled charmingly, his glow power around his body lessened. Leave the girl behind and you and your men and those slaves can walk away. He gestured to the rest of Claymore One. Don't know what you're talking about, Terrier gave a shrug. But if you don't retreat, your friend here will get it. All right, then have it your way. Dante tilted his head and glowing his body brighter, he readied his great sword, taking a step towards Terrier. If that's the way you want to play it. Terrier looked down at the two girls. Sorry, no offense. And he casually pointed at the girl mage and fired. Bam! End of chapter. Chapter 148. Eye of the Sun. Liz jumped as the five millimeter round punched through her calf like paper. A bullet ripping the tendons and muscles and exited out the drill into the soft wet ground and with a splatter of bright red blood. She stared dumbfounded at the tiny red hole where the blood was starting to flow out from her wound, and slowly her mind caught up with the situation. She looked so shocked that Tyria felt bad shooting her, and turned his attention back to the hero who had paused and had a curious expression on his face. What is that artifact? the hero asked. This? None of your business. Tyria kept his pistol trained on the two girls. Leave, and you and your party can walk away when we are at a safe distance. I am really curious about these ones you have. The hero narrowed his eyes, his normal smile no longer shone, and instead his face bore an expression of emptiness. Well, it don't wish to tell me, I'll just force it out of you then. And he charged. Keep dreaming, jerk. Tyria knew that the hero doesn't care about the lives of his party, and dropped the signal for the rest of the fire at the hero. Clouds of smoke, thunder, and fire erupted from the forest as the rest fired at the hero who swung his greatsword up, ignoring the bullet impacts. Flash out! Tabal yelled, warning as he tossed a flashbang at the charging hero, who brought up the flat of his greatsword up, shielding his face from the burst of a sudden light and eardrum bursting blast. Betty tricks, let me show you the true power of real light! Dante screamed, and his ears rang from the after effects of the flashbang. Hear my words, thy god of thunder, show me the might of the sun. And his body burst into a blinding light that was like a mini-second sun in the forest. Ah! The men of Claymore One and the two girls cried out in pain as the light flared from the hero blinded them. Loke covered his eyes as his hands and still found that he could see through his flesh, so then see the bones in his hand from the light of the hero. Back! Tyria kept his eyes closed, yet the light spot stayed in his vision and almost made him tear. He followed the sounds of the screaming girls and reached down as his leg kicked a thrashing body. He reached down and grabbed the person and started to drag the kicking body along. Grab the other one, he yelled. A sudden fall slammed against him and sent him flying and smashing into a tree, cracking the wood. The magic shield flickered wildly as the damage taken overloaded his shield. Tyria's vision slowly recovered, and he saw the brightly glowing figure standing before him, with blurry, long object raised above his head. Oh, fuck. The forest in front of the advancing marines suddenly lit up, and the marines froze before Lieutenant Joseph yelled, That way! Double time! Go, go, go! The marines quickly ran through the foliage, ignoring the danger and tripping over the tree roots, or breaking an ankle in the mad rush to the scene. Dante smiled. I'll just take your legs, so be good and stay there for me, okay? And just as he swung his greatsword down, someone tackled him from the side, sending both of them rolling over the undergrowth. 
He looked to who it was and found it was one of the mercenaries that had wrapped his arms around him and shoved him away. He slammed his elbow down sharply on the mercenary, causing the person to give out a yell of pain and halt loosen. Bunching up on his knees, he lashed out with the sound of cursed mercenary flying away, smashing through the trees with the bone-crunching cracks. He smiled and stood up, and he felt something on his foot. He looked down and saw the dark, olive-green, spheric objects rolling around his feet, and the ground exploded into flames and smoke. Deval coughed up blood as he laid on the ruins of the tree that he was struck in, his left arm and leg dangling at weird angles that a body shouldn't be doing. He smiled and stuck a middle finger up weakly at the two grenades he dropped down that the hero blew up, before fading away to darkness. Devil! Loke yelled as he saw his teammate's broken body. The twin explosion of the grenades jerked his attention back to the hero, only to see the hero stood in remaining almost unscathed. Son of a witch! He raised his M1 and fired round after round at the hero. To his surprise, he saw his round sending the hero jerking back, and realized that the grenades must have deleted his magic shields or something. Keeping his fire up, emptying all the shots of his rifle, he dropped his rifle in the sling and drew his glock, bumping all thirty rounds in the pistol magazine into the barely standing hero. Is that all? The hero spoke, his clothing in tatters, several bruises could be seen, and his ears and his nose were leaking a small trail of blood. His usual cheerful mood was gone, replaced with a chilling aura. The golden glow turning bluish, and he stood up and wiped the blood away from his nose. He looked down at the mithril greatsword, which had several cracks in its blade, and cracked his knuckles, and stared down at the lone man with a thunder wand in his hands. Die. He punched out, sending a shockwave that ripped up the soil and blew away the trees in its path. His opponents rolled away as the last instinct, barely dodging his attack. He threw another two punches out and charged forward, closing the distance to the madly dodging mercenary who sent several spells with his witch when they slapped away with ease. Suddenly, at his side, more thunder and fire rained down on him. Dante glanced to the side and saw the leader of the mercenaries throwing spells at his thunderstick at him, and a wave of anger grew in him. Can't they die already? He thought angrily. Arrgh. He roared out, sent out a shockwave of pure energy that sent both the mercenaries tumbling down and the girls crying in fear. He saw the leader of the mercenaries crumble down, coughing and vomiting blood as his magic shields were unable to tank the damage he dealt out. Dante quickly turned to the lost opponent, who still looked back at him with defiance in his eyes. I will gorge out those eyes, pretty boy. Dante sneered and leapt forward, each step sending him several meters forwards, his right arm raised back and his two fingers hooked back, ready to claw out Loke's eyes as he kneeled down to the ground. Fark you! A voice suddenly came from behind the thunder roared, making Dante jerk as bullets impacted his back. He rolled to the side to avoid the spells and glared at the newcomer. Hitsu! Loke cried out as if he half-crawled to cover, dragging his suddenly heavy rifle along. You lucky son of a witch is still alive! Lucky! Dante cocked his head. I don't think so, for he will die soon. Yeah, tell that to the crazy witch who tried to do me with five hundred magic missiles. Hitsu laughed. Liz! Bah! Useless! Dante spat out a gobble of blood from his mouth. Enough talk. Time to die. Okay, Itsu shrugged. You first. 
and he fired his M2 at the wildly dodging hero charging at him. Here, have a present. He lobbed a grenade before the hero and hopped down the tree root and was on quickly scrambled away. Dante's eyes grew wide as he recognized the olive green colored ball and he quickly swerved out of its way. As the curse spell ignited, his already badly weakened shields catching some of the blast flickered wildly. You will pay for that, Dante's curse, and threw a punch through the tree where he guessed the guy was hiding, causing the tree to explode. Missed me, Itza cried as he ran to another tree for cover, taking a knee and popping a few shots at the hero. Damn, how do we stop this crazy jerk? Enough, Dante screamed. Sun God, bless me with all of your powers. For scum, defy your blessing and scorn your light. Give me strength and smite all the darkness in the land for eternal light. I of the sun. The land shook and the mountains rumbled as the presence of the ancient as the mountains suddenly bore down on top of the hero. The golden outline of an eye manifested over the skies and a warm glow covered the land. Dante laughed as the glow recovered his wounds in manner. All hail the sun god. Um, that's bad. Right, Hitsu said as he cast a recovery spell and look. We are so screwed. Mortals, I, Dante, the hero of the Chosen of the Sun God, have lived for over two hundred years. Dante half floated in the air of power from the divinity filling his body. Be proud that this is the second time I used the spell on a mortal, and I will wipe you out, and I will find the girl and kill her, and you... Can't stop me. One round away, a sudden loud crack and a whoosh screamed out, and Dante was suddenly covered in an explosion. Loke and Hitsu turned in surprise and suddenly saw two dozen camouflage figures emerging from the undergrowth and laughed madly to themselves. The marines had come. Hit the wise-cracking jerk again, Lieutenant Joseph commanded. All RPG-1 teams hit the mark. And the RPG-1 toting team shouldered their bazookas and waited till the smoke cleared, exposing the indignant hero who was coughing and waving away the smoke round. One round away, and an RPG blast was rocked the forest, followed by another and another. The glowing manifestation of the Eye of the Sun slowly diminished and disappeared as the hero was hit by at least seven bazookas. Enough! The hero Dante roared, sending a shockwave out, and sent most of the nearby marines flying away from the force of his powers. I am God! Only to be answered with another rocket to the face, sending him tumbling down. No! Dante felt his powers reclining, and he looked up and found the spell he had cast disappearing. How could divine powers be matched by ants? He gathered all of his energy into his right fist and punched out, sending a golden beam of energy directly at the team of strange-clothed soldiers who confounded his eyes as they seemed to blend in with the forest. You will not defeat me! He raised his hand to gather energy again. I will crush you all like ants! Hit him with all the MGs! Lieutenant Joseph ordered next, and the gunners, armed with the new MG-1 magebreakers, fired up sending lines of traces at the madly dodging hero. Hit it with everything. Kill that son of a witch. Hoorah! The marines let a rip. Rifles, machine guns, and even the occasional RPG slammed into the frantic-looking hero. 
Sparks and smoke erupted all around the hero. The force of the concentrated barrage for machine guns and at least twenty rifles forced him to be able to focus on defending only. Dante growled at the strange thunder spells were seriously draining his recovery magic. His previously recovered wounds started to hurt again, and those strange but deadly powerful spells had further weakened his body and magical luck. Stop this nonsense! I am a god. Orc smash god! Private One Tooth had braced the MG1 on the head of a sagi. The spider tank fired and a control burst, guiding the tracers into the path of the retreating hero. <laughs> Run, you puny god! Run. End of chapter. Chapter 149. The Long Walk Home. Cease fire, cease fire, Lieutenant Joseph yelled as the hero retreated from sight. Check your weapons. Medics, get to work. We got wounded here. He quickly directed his men into action. Section 3 and 4 set up a defensive perimeter here and here. Sergeants, take your men. Move! Lieutenant Joseph walked up to the two operators that was in a sorry state, but still standing Claymore 1 members. Report, soldier. Hitsu and Loke both straightened up and replied, Sir, Specialist Corporal Hitsu and Specialist Private Loke reporting, sir. What happened, son? Lieutenant Joseph gestured to them to sit down as the medics arrived to check their wounds. Take it easy and tell me what happened. Loke and Hitsu then gave out their accounts of the situation from the time that they left the town till just now's fight. By the time their story was told, the rest of the heavily injured members were all stabilized, strapped onto stretchers, and waiting to be transported. Damn, that was a hell of a fight, Lieutenant Joseph said, nodding in admiration at their capabilities. All right, get some ammo, some food, and some water. We'll need to move and head out into the rendezvous point, and hopefully round up all of those scattered slaves. Lieutenant Joseph stood up and glanced around at the destroyed land an artificial clearing roughly the size of a small marshalling field and stumps and broken trees and roots sticking out from the gorged soil. The large pieces of wet wood littering everywhere and gave off a sweet and sickly smell of sap. He looked at his platoon sergeant with a wordless handed him a note and read the contents. Seven wounded, one critical from platoon four. Claymore one has two walking wounded, the team leader and one more in critical condition, and we have two prisoners, both slightly shaken up. One of them has a gunshot wound to the leg, but she will survive. Lieutenant Rochosa raised an eyebrow at his sergeant and gave his report. Secure the prisoners, Lieutenant Joseph said. Give them all the courtesy, but if they try anything funny, shoot them. NCOs, gather up, Lieutenant Joseph yelled, clapping his gloved hands together. Soon all the sergeants arrived before him, and he said, We will move out in ten minutes. Prepare your men to move. I want section four at the rear, covering our rears. We do not know if the hero will come back for round two. So tell your boys to keep our eyes and ears open, their mouths and rears shut tight. Yes, sir, the NCO's chorused, grinning at the prospect of kicking the hero's rear again if it comes back for round two. Ensure your men have adequate ammo, water, and food, Lieutenant Joseph continued. I did not bring along the supplies for the ACAGs just to look pretty out here. I expect them to be used up. Now, before we fight, we had encountered some of the freed slaves and we pointed them in the general direction where to meet up later. Section 2 and 3 will do the sweeping patrol back to the rendezvous point and keep your eyes out for any stragglers. 
Section 1 will transport the wounded. Questions? No? Okay, get to work, people. We got a long walk home. Dante scrambled madly through the forest, ignoring the slaps of the low-hanging branches and suddenly appeared before a small river stream. He splashed into the icy cold water, and cold shook him awake from his flight, and he stood there heaving his waist-deep water, the river washing away the blood and mud from his body. Ah! He slammed both of his clenched fists down on the falling water, causing the massive spouts of water to surge up. Hands dare to wound me! He let out a falling spray of water wash over him as he dunked his head into the river for a short while before standing up again, and his face was his usual smile. Now that I know why the rock requested me to come here, he turned and looked back at where he ran from. A smile grew even wider. I'll be back at this time. I'll crush you, ants. And he vanished without a trace from the river. UNS Singapore Command Bridge Situation on the ground, Captain Blake asked as he settled into his chair, accepting the steaming mug of local tea from the side. Commander Ford turned around from the tactical plot and replied, Situation resolved, but unknown if the hero will attempt a second attack. Blake nodded and looked at the UAV feed hovering over the area of operations. Damn, they destroyed the area of a football field in the forest. Yes, sir, but it's mostly done by the hero himself, Ford explained. Also, watch this. He switched the view to where the manifestation of divine power was recorded. What the hell? Blake sat up in his chair as he looked at the golden eye in the sky. What do we know about this? Sadly, nothing, Ford replied. Magister Thorne hasn't seen anything like that before, and his explanation is that the power is highly likely to do with the divinity in the hero's possession. We tried all manners of spectrum analysis on it, and it shows up in every sensor that we have out there. Infrared, ultraviolet, x-ray, gamma, Ford continued. Dr. Sharon appeared to be going crazy in a lab over this. She reports a dense amount of radiation given off, but it did not belong to any of the three main types we know of, Ford said. Not alpha, beta, or gamma. But one thing we do know is that the hero's radiation spike and all the radiation given off were like attracted to him like a magnet. Ford switched the image, showing the black and white image and a massive orange-red blob over the eye, and the colorful blob was connected to the hero at the bottom of the image. The hero was displayed in the ink blob and the orange and red in the picture. Dr. Sharon suggested that the divine powers or even the magic powers are from the radiation. What just what kind, how, and why, or even the dangers of long-term exposure are all blanks at this point in time. She is suggesting that if we can fine-tune our instruments to detect this unknown kind of radiation, we can use it to detect magic. Blake nodded. Do it. Tell Sharon to take a break. Lately, she doesn't seem to be herself. I do not want to order her to lay off her work. God knows how important it is, but she needs to pace herself and not overwork herself. We need her healthy and in one piece. Yes, sir, Ford nodded. I'll pass on your word. Good. What's the extraction plan for our forces on the ground? Blake asked. Ford switched to the view of the overhead map and traced several lines. They will march up from this point all the way back here. Why not have the Valkyries here lift them back? Blake asked. We do not have the capacity for all of that, Ford replied. Each trip can take almost 60 people and will require at least three hours before the next dust-off. This will make the last two groups remaining on the ground highly vulnerable to attacks from monsters and the hero. I see, 
Ray closed his eyes. Make sure all available support is given to them. It's a long walk home. Uncharted Forest Rendezvous Point Red the striated slaves cried out in desperation, fear, and anger as three massive owlbears stood before them and charged, slammed into a single line of slaves who were armed with looted swords and shields of the Empire soldiers, and a frenzied melee broke out. Young's rifle and his pistol had long run out of ammo, and he could only stab out the bayonet attached to his rifle, scoring a thin gash in the flank of the bear-like creature. Towering over three meters within its hind legs, the owl boy had a head on the face of an owl and the body of a bear, with feathers growing out of certain parts of its front limbs. Its claws were tipped with six-inch-long razor-sharp talons that can rip a man apart in two with a single swipe of its claws. The desperate slaves could only stand and fight so they no longer had any strength to run, and running would only result in owl bears hunting them down behind. Crap! They must have smelt the scent of blood on our bodies, Altier yelled as he fired his last remaining pistol magazine at the nearest owlbear, blowing out chunks of meat from the hair from its chest. Fark, I'm out. Young eyed the river at a short distance away. Using a small mound of stone set in a prearranged manner, he knew that the marines had landed and they had buried a small cache of supplies there, but the issue now was the remaining three owlbears blocking the way. Use your spells, Young yelled out and summoned up his remaining mana reserves, barely drawing out two magic circle spell and a flung a lightning bolt at the charging owlbear who was cutting down the weaker slaves. My magic is as dry as your tits, Altier yelled back as he rammed his bayonet into the back of the owlbear. The owlbear roared and the bayonet stabbed through its thick hide and it spun around, sending Altier flying back, screaming. If they'd reared up on his hind legs and hovered over the stunned soldier, ready to drown, Altiered into a bloody paste. Suddenly, a white-shaped bird darted down and slashed at the face of the owlbear, sending it into a maddened frenzy. The white bird constantly harassed the face of the owlbear, making a retreat and trying to cut the bird down. Quick, run! The girl's voice from behind young and Altiered turned and saw the white-haired cat girl carrying someone on her back, gesturing for them to behind a tree. We can't, young Bitley held back. This is where we need to wait for the rest of them to come. You want to die here? Kagar angrily yelled back. My magic won't last long. I don't have the proper materials to make any proper talismans. No crap, Altiad said as he watched the owlbear take swipes at the paper bird. If we run, they're just going to hunt us down, and running just means you're going to die tired. Can you make more of those things, Young asked. We need like, uh, five, no, three minutes. I don't have the materials, Kagai yelled, wondering why the two would want to keep fighting. I need parchments. Will this do? Young tossed out a slightly sweat-soaked, soggy notepad. It's a bit wet, but it's paper. Paper? Kagai looked at an almost perfect line of rectal notepad. Yes, I think so. She quickly pulled and still unconscious Billy against the tree trunk and bit her own forefinger, breaking the skin and blood soon flowed out and started to scribble weird runes on the paper. Young and Altiad looked at each other and gave a shrug, unable to understand her magic. Okay, once the spells distract the three owlbears, we go for the buried supplies. Clear? Altiad looked over to where Young was pointing and gauged the distance. About a hundred meters sprint, and to dig three minutes— I think we need five. Just do it, Young said. Come on. He gripped the empty rifle and charged out, angling towards the buried cache. 
the remaining slaves still vainly fighting off the owlbears who had smelled blood and were angry for the juicy flesh running around in front of them. Done! Kagar yelled and looked up to find both soldiers missing. What? Wait! <sighs> she saw the two had already run up to the owlbears without waiting for her. She quickly held out three pieces of makeshift talismans and chanted, imbuing her spirit into the pieces of paper as she tossed them out sharply. Go! End of chapter Chapter 150 Chocolate Three pieces of talisman burst into pale blue flames as they left Kagar's hands. Then three white paper eagles darted out, each arrowing towards an owlbear. The paper eagles' sharp claws drew paper-thin cuts across the faces and arms of the owlbears as they tried to block and swipe away the flying inanimate eagles buzzing around them. The slaves gave a tired cheer as they say the owlbears were distracted by the paper eagles and quickly regrouped and recovered their strength. Now, let's go, Young yelled as he saw the owlbears ignoring them. Both Young and Altia dashed past the owlbears to the puzzlement of the slaves as they headed towards a small mound of stones near the river. Altia sprinted and slid to a halt on his knees directly next to the stones and gave a quickly swept them away. His gloved hands darted to dig at the loose soil together with Young. One of the owlbears growled, and with a lucky swipe, it managed to tear one of the paper eagles to shreds, and his eyes glowing red with anger, it landed on all fours and charged the nearest creatures, which were the two members of Claymore One. Oh crap, here it comes, Altier had yelled in a panic as he frantically shoved a large handful of dirt away. Which mother Farker buried the cash so deep? Suddenly, another paper eagle slashed across the path of the owlbear. Its razor-sharp wings giving a paper cut across the left eye of the owlbear, slicing its pupils open with a clear fluid mixed with the blood burst out. The owlbear screamed in pain and anger, blinded in one eye. It thrashed madly and turned around again and hammered and slashed at the powerful claws wildly in pain. God bless that cat girl! Young barely paused as his actions as he shoved the dirt. As he looked at the crazed owlbear just meters away, his stomach feeling like it had dropped somewhere and the fear threatening to overwhelm him. Just as the time, Altiet's hand slammed onto something hard in the soil and he quickly swept the soil and dirt away, revealing an olive-green wooden surface. Got it? Yeah, quick. Digging at the edges of the crate, both of them tugged on the long crate out and quickly opened it, revealing a couple of still factory-fresh greasy M1 magelocks and a cardboard boxes of ammunition covered in grease paper. Ripping away the grease paper covering the humans, wording 65 by 75 millimeter 50 cartridges could be seen printed on the side of the boxes of ammunition. They quickly tore the packages away and started shoving the loose 6.5 millimeter rounds into the new rifles from the crates. The owlbears had destroyed all the papal evils by this time, and Kagar had run out of endurance, barely able to channel more of a spirit before the power of the talismans that she was trying to draw. The slaves barely had recovered back a bit of breath, now faced with two greatly angry owlbears covered in paper cuts. The last half-blind owlbear's remaining eye gleamed with a rage as it eyed the two-legged grin roared, ignoring the paper eagle as it decided to vent all its pent-up rage at the nearest thing it could. It roared again, its claws digging furrows into the soil as it bounced towards them. 
Here it comes, Altier yelled, his fingers shaking slightly as he pressed down another 6.5mm cartridge into the open chamber of the M1 Magelock. Ah! You shoot, I load, Young yelled back as he looked up at the looming owlbear charging at them at a pace that ate up every short distance between them. The owlbear's wide beak opened up in a permanent growl and it ran on all fours, planning to use its beak to rend them to pieces. Altiad swiftly raised his half-reloaded rifle and slammed the bolt forward in one daft move, and fired. The thunderous bark of the rifle and the dense, dirty cloud of gun smoke erupted from the muzzle of the magelock, and the rifle butt slammed painfully into his already bruised shoulder, felt comforting to him. The deftly worked the bolt firing again, not waiting for the gun smoke to clear, as the huge, shadowy figure loomed up in front of him, barely needing to aim. Yeah! Young scrambled out of the way at the crashing owlbear, spilling loose cartridges all over the ground. As the owlbear's limbs suddenly lost all its strength and tumbled forward, its momentum carrying it forward directly to where Young was at the moment ago. That thing nearly crushed me to death. Young gave a curse at Yaltiard. Here, catch. He tossed the fully loaded rifle over to Yaltiard, who caught it in one hand and tossed back the other rifle, while Young grabbed and started reloading using the spilled ammo on the ground. Altiet went off at a half-crouch and started firing at the other owlbears. It's bear season now. Uncharted forest rendezvous point red. Lieutenant Joseph stepped out of the darkening forest and the first thing he greeted him was a small bonfire where a large group of ragged-looking slaves were gathered around roasting meat. He shook his head and turned to look at the advance party, who gave a helpless shrug. We found them just like that too, sir. Well, whatever, Lieutenant Joseph sighed. Signal the rest to join us, and we'll do a roll call. Yes, sir, the advance party replied and headed back to the forest. Sir, Lieutenant Joseph turned and saw two banged-up-looking individuals wearing leather armor with a tactical vest over it. Specialist Young and Altiad reporting, sir. What's this? A picnic? Lieutenant Joseph raised an eyebrow at the two soldiers. No, sir, Young reported. We were attacked by owlbears, sir, and the people had nothing to eat since yesterday and the meat will just spoil if we just left it there. At ease, soldier. Lieutenant Joseph suddenly gave a grin. I was joking, but is this area secure? We did the best we could to mask the area with non-detection magic, Alti had said, but it might not work with the heroes since they found us the last time. We have a few slaves walking the perimeter, Young added. <laughs> Lieutenant Joseph snorted. My marines sneaked past them, and they didn't notice us till they announced their arrival. Both Young and Altier just shrugged. It's the best we could do with what we had, sir. For that, good work, Lieutenant Joseph admitted. All right, the rest of you men and you guys will be joining us soon. Any more meat left? Kagar sat with her back against the tree, holding a steaming piece of meat, watching the strange and similarly clothed men paint over the faces, wondering where did the group of barbarians come from. The mercenaries that protected them were acting very friendly to these barbarians, and even seemed to defer to one of them, wearing a sort of dark blue hat that looked like a flattened slime on his head. She also saw the leader of the mercenaries being carried in, his face pale, his breathing laborious. She wondered if he would be able to survive the travel through the forest. What had happened when they stayed behind to fight the hero and the pursuing soldiers, she wondered. Kagar bit into a cooling meat and oil juices stripped out, putting her mouth with a strong, gamey taste. She quickly swallowed the meat, not knowing when they would have another chance to eat. Hello, Kagar startled at the suddenly someone spoke to her. 
She looked up from a half-eaten meat and saw the leader of the barbarian standing in front of her. She quickly got up and was able to get rid of a greeting bow, and was stopped by the barbarian. Relax, continue eating, I just want to ask some questions. Kagar nodded timidly, taking the opportunity to observe the barbarian in front of her. She noticed that his clothes appeared to be finely made, the color and the pattern seemed to turn them invisible to the eye in the forest. Seeing the material closer, she realized that these were made out of perfect little boxes and long boxes. Even the strange belt, with its many pouches and materials of workmanship, was amazing. And suddenly, the realization hit her. She saw the same gear worn by the mercenaries, and also almost all the barbarians were equipped with the same items. Who, in the spirit world, was so rich to be able to make perfectly similar equipment in such a scale and quality? The barbarian gave a pearly white smile, giving a sharp contrast to his dark painted face, making him look like some sort of living plant with a smile, sending shivers down Kagar's spine. First of all, I want to thank you for helping them with your powers. Lieutenant Joseph jerked a thumb towards Claymore One members sleeping under one of the campfires. My name is Joseph Token. I am a lieutenant, and I'm in charge of this merry band of misfits. Kagar nodded. I was just doing what I must be done at this only time. She nibbled on her meat nervously, her ears flattened on her head. <laughs> Don't be so nervous, Joseph said and sat down before the girl, removing his beret and took out his water bottle and started to wash off his face paint. Kagar gave a poke to his slime hat, wondering who would wear something like that, but found the texture from the hat was actually some kind of cloth. She quickly tucked her hands away when Joseph wiped his face clean with a cloth. Then she realized that Joseph was actually an older than she assumed at first, as the weather-hardened face suit appeared behind the cleaned war paint. Now, where was I? Lieutenant Joseph threw the towel and bottle away. Ah, yes, your powers. If I am correct, you should be a priestess of the Peace Clan, yes? Joseph asked. Kagar nodded again, wondering what he wanted to know. Well, it's very rare to find a priestess of the Peace Clan, Joseph continued. May I know your name? Kagar. She replied in some consideration, Tosa. Miss Kagar, if you don't mind, can you share how you came to be a, um, slave? Joseph asked. I know that the priestess of the beast clans are considered leaders and elders and are quite respected in the communities. Kagar nodded. She uses her powers had already attracted a few of the beastkin slaves who had earlier come and paid their respects to her already, treating her like royalty. The capital had fell. What? Joseph looked and shocked. You mean the Bee City has fallen to the Empire? When and how? I remember that the Bee City has a guardian that is able to raise the city protection spell. Um, Gagar looked down, guilty feelings resurfacing as she remembered how she failed her people trust in protecting the city. I fell three or four months ago. I don't remember to be the exact timing. Her ears drooped sadly over the silver-white hair. Her tail laid listlessly and tears started to stream from the edges of her eyes. I see. Joseph, noticing her distress, quickly changed the subject. Your earlier efforts today have saved everyone here. He dug into his pouches and removed a piece of chocolate and offered it to her. Eat it, Joseph said. Don't think of the past. We live now and for the future. Kagar took the offered item and pondered a while before unwrapping the chocolate and gave it a lick, before turning away and nibbling at it furiously. Joseph gave a relieved sigh as he watched Kagar's actions. The piece of chocolate was given to him by the princess when he departed for the mission, and he knew that it was her favorite human food ever, since she had some during his first meeting with the humans. 
What is it with girls and chocolate? End of chapter. Chapter 151. Far Harbor. South of the Seacliff Mining Complex, Goblin Coast. Two jeeps rumbled down the grassland, following a path made by a worn down by dozens of vehicles traffic over the week. Captain Blake sat on the rear seat, facing the rosy-cheeked Princess Shireen, who had her face to the wind, her eyes half-closed in the bliss as she enjoyed the ride in the uncovered top jeep. Blake had to admit that the view of the grassland around them was beautiful in a wild, untamed way. With the mountains as a backdrop, the ever-blue forest and the distance and the majestic ocean spreading across the view, surrounding by the gentle weaving of the stalks of yellow grass. This was something rare to see on earth these days. Only in the frontier or rim walls could you see the wild beauty. The jeep rolled up to a small grass dune as they saw the sprawling complex under the construction in the distance. The vehicles drove closer, details start to appear. Trucks and construction materials were being unloaded, cement was being poured, and cranes looming over the water were dangling massive concrete supports into the sea as the skeleton of a deep water pier was being constructed. Teams of security personnel patrolled, one of the perimeter next to the freshly erected steel fences, while the other construction went on. Storage sheds, hangars, fuel bunkers, housing, offices, and even helipads were all in the process of being built. Shireen eyed all the ongoing with a sparkle in her eyes, turning to Blake and commanding cloudily over the wind. Your human technology is still amazing even after seeing it again and again. If it was the old us trying to build a harbor city here, it would take many years and tens of thousands of workers to build it. Yet, this only took weeks and can be laid out. She shouted over the roaring wind. It will still take some time before the harbor is fully constructed, Blake yelled back. But as long as the pier is ready, we can start using it to first meet the ship that the Isles is sending over in a couple of weeks' time. Shireen nodded, her pinkish hair in the long ponytail whipping in the wind. And what are those? She pointed at the large rectangular area that had been dug up, easily the size of a soccer field that was in the city where the humans had her people going crazy over the game called Soccer. Those will be dry docks for ships to be constructed in the future, Blake replied, provided R&D comes up with a workable hull. The jeeps were weaving through the heavily fortified checkpoints where the teams of security in black-clad leather armor with shotguns, rifles, and bayonets manned the bunkers. The jeeps drove on, passing by pallets and pallets of construction materials, and finally rolled to a stop before the inner gate of the single, almost completed pier. Shireen took the offered hand of Blake and hopped down. She was dressed in a white blouse made of muffalo fur and tucked into a pair of khaki trousers, and ending in a pair of black combat boots, which would be scandalous to her court ladies in the old days. She looked up at the towering crane where it creaked and hoisted, a massive prefabricated concrete piece swinging it over their heads and hovering over the team of workers wearing yellow helmets and brightly orange jackets. The seeming weak-looking arms of the crane were reinforced with strengthening magic ruins and tethered to the ground with earth magic to prevent the crane from toppling over from the massive blocks of concrete weighing on several tons. The crane lowered the block gently into the arms of the workers who maneuvered it into a position like a puzzle piece, fitting it perfectly into place and the men, like ants, started to remove the cables and tied the block rapidly. 
A portly-looking human wearing a white hard hat came jogging over as Shireen and Blake watched the ongoing work with their escorts. Captain! Princess! Petty Officer Letts waved as he stopped before them and wiped the sweat off his safety helmet. Guards, Captain, stop throwing me projects. The mining facilities are already taking up all my time already. Blake grinned and looked at Letts's hand. Well, who asked you to be the boss of construction company before getting drafted? Yeah, but a man needs some time off and not having an impossible construction project on top of another. Let's complain good-naturedly. Well, enough whining. Welcome to Far Harbor. Vorledge, the town garrison. Dante lounged leisurely over a pillow-full chair, with his mud-stained boots hitched up on the glossy wooden table. The garrison commander's face was pale with a forced smile as he grimaced inwardly as the mud had stained into the rich, dark wood of his table. Sir Hero, let me get this straight. You want me to muster all available fighting men of the garrison to go after some runaway slaves and rebels? Dante nodded cheerfully, taking a swirl of the goblets of purple wine. Yes, all your men and dragons. Wait. Before we get into that, the commander asked, what happened to the 200 soldiers and 100 dragon cavalry I dispatched to your aid under the party member? Dead. Dante gave a nonchalant shrug. The rebels are pretty strong. What? 300 soldiers all dead? The blushy moustache of the garrison commander twitched in agitation. Care to explain it? The commander's grey eyes narrowed in suppressed anger at the attitude of the hero. Well, we ambushed them as they were about to set up camp. Dante explained, ignoring the gear thrown to him by the commander. But turns out the small number of rebels were more than enough to put three hundred of your, um, soldiers. Dante gave another shrug as he returned the commander's glare with a smile. A nerve twitched at the end of the forehead of the commander as he caught Dante's hidden meaning. That the troops were weak and it was their fault that they died. He suppressed the anger, boiling inside. What about the town? You destroyed half of it just the other night and injured many civilians and the town's watchmen. Oh, that really wasn't my fault, Dante flashed a smile. I was flushing the rebels out, and those people just did not move away fast enough. Don't you worry, their souls will be taken to care of by the sun god. The commander slammed both of his clenched fists down on the table in fury. This is not acceptable. You wantonly killed people and ran amok in the town and also wasted three hundred of his majesty's soldiers. You will not have a single more soldier from me and go in some wild goose chase. Oh, are you sure? Dante did not even bat an eyebrow at the display of aggression from the commander. I do have a letter from the rock that you are to grant me all the demands and requests that I make, you know. I will take it up with the emperor, but no, I will not move the troops with your word. The commander firmly stated with his stance, Get out of my office, you are not welcome, and you can be certain the emperor will hear a word of this. Oh, sure, the Dante stood up and turned to the door. That is a nice sword. He gestured to the pair of cross swords over the shield with a motif of a griffin hung on the side of the wall. He turned and smiled at the commander, who had his guard up and winked. Before, with a speed faster than the eye could follow, he snatched one of the swords off the wall and slashed horizontally at barely reacting commander. Nah, my bad, this sword is actually a piece of junk. Dante gave a flick of his finger against the blade and the sword which made it rang tossed away to the side and opened up the door of his office. Hey you, he called one of the station guards outside. Who's the next in charge after the commander? The guard was surprised at the question and blabbed something out. 
which Dante shrugged it away. Call him here now. It's urgent. Um... The guard looked at each other in confusion, wondering what was going on. Come on, hurry up. Dante gave a clap, and finally one of the guards nodded and ran off, his armor clanging loudly down the stone hall. Good boy. Dante returned to the room, closing the door behind him, and he sat at the pillow-lined chair and gave a toast to the headless commander still seated in his chair. Cheers. Goblin Coast, Far Harbor. We used prefabrication techniques here. Let's explained as he led the captain and the princess onto the tour of the harbor. Basically, we model out how we want the buildings and structures to look in a 3D software, and we build it out in pieces, like a puzzle before putting them together. He gestured at the open area where the massive blocks of various shapes were laid out in the sun. Those are all part of the pier that are currently going up. The workers just have to follow the numbers and the parts and put them together. Really simple. Shireen made an impressed sound. So you mean it's just like one of those prefabrications here and then put them together later? Yes, let's grinned with the pronunciation. It cuts down on the workload and vastly speeds up the construction time. He pointed out it to the pier. We don't even need a hammer to support into the seabed. We just stick tons and tons of concrete into the sea as a foundation. Short as an army or God's power, these concrete blocks won't even move. And on top of it off, all the blocks have anti-corrosion ruins installed into them, so weathering from the waves will be drastically reduced at the same time. Very nice, Blake nodded, just impressed as Shireen was so at the speed of the way the construction of the harbor. What's the timeline like? If the weather holds for the next week, let's replied with a small frown, we can finish casting the major blocks for the pier, and it'll take another week to finish up installing it all, say two and a half week tops for the pier to commerce operations. For the rest of the harbor, I'd say end of summer, at least three months for all the necessities to be installed, and another two months to go into full operations, let's said. Blake nodded. How about the construction slips? When can we start constructions? Well, I'll say three months minimum, at least, Let's replied. But we did set up a workshop down at the pier for prototyping the new wet water vessels you wanted. It would be sufficient for your needs for now. As long as it is not mass-produced or anything larger than a corvette, your team can start to work on it in about a week. Blake nodded. I'll transfer the R&D team and work crew over in a week's time then. Housing. Very basic quarters, but there are hot showers and flush toilets. All solar power and wind powered until we get another new Dragonite power plants installed. Let reported. Survey teams are also mapping out terrains from here to Seacliff Mining Complex. Once most of the work is done, we can start the next phase of construction. Let's add it. A rail line from here linking to the mining complex and back to the colony. In the meantime, a superhighway is the only other means of transportation to Far Harbor from the mines. Let's said. Blake nodded. In the future, all our manufactories and refining industries will be all sited down the south, while the agricultural industries will be along the northern quarter of the colony. He disclosed parts of his plans to Shireen, who nodded. All right, let's make sure Far Harbor is enough to be up to running within two weeks' time, Blake said. We have guests from afar coming soon. End of chapter. Chapter 152. Wings of War. The Isles, Anchor, Island, Fleet Docks, 
The creaking of the wooden planks and the cries of the sea verums were mixed together with the chorus and clamor of voices and the raucous yells of sailors and porters as the ship's fleet stocks were being loaded up with supplies and being prepared for sea, making the whole port busy and bustling. Wagons carrying supplies foregrounded up flour and barrels of salted meat were unloaded by porters who carried the cargo down the slippery and wet wooden planks to the docks nimbly while coopers and the dock workers labored at the bank barrels and casks to store water and rations. Dozens and dozens of long boats landed and supplies were rowed after into the sea, where the other three master ships were anchored, transferring the supplies on board. Crews on board other ships were spent their time manning the pumps, coating the painting and wood hull, and making repairs to the areas where rot had seeped into the planks. Rigging was being coated with tar and spliced up replaced was the crew ensured that the rigging was all shipshape. Others patched and replaced the sails while cabin boys polished brass fixtures and chipped away at the rusted iron parts of the painting them over. The decks were swabbed and clean and supplies were tallied and carefully stored in the ship's holds. The deck and under deck ballisters were checked and iron tipped bolts were polished and painted, while the mechanisms of the ballistas were oiled carefully. Third Fleet Master de John stood next to a pair of heavy ballistas that were sitting facing the entrance to the fleet dock at the Anko Island. His sea dragon leather boot braced up on top of one of the stone battlements as he observed the bustling scene from the stone fort protecting the anchorage. Fleet Master... A white-coated sailor with lesser braiding on his coat stood respectfully several steps behind a john, and in his arms he held a silver tray with several scrolls stacked neatly tied with different colored ribbons. The daily fleet reports is here. The john watched the activity going down in the harbor for a while more before stepping down and picking up the topmost scroll. His gold-braided long coat flapped in the wind as he slung it over his shoulder, while wearing a dark blue pea coat with a white cravat and a loose white pants and high boots. He unfurled the scrum after ripping off the red ribbon and quickly glanced through the report and snorted. The fearless, outrunner, and iron will have sprung a leak. He tossed the scroll back onto the pile. They need three days to fix those leaks. Those idiots, I should have them removed as captains for not properly maintaining their ships. Master, it'll not be wise to change captains with the date of the departure so soon. His aide advised, if we relocate the other ship carpenters over to help out, we can complete the repairs faster and still be within the schedule to depart. Do it, the John growled as he gave a dismissal glance at the remaining reports. Give me a summarized rundown of the rest of the reports. He turned back to watch the ongoing fleet operations. Ship of the Line, Boar, Talon, and your flagship Fury all report that the ships are shipshape and ready to sail once supplies have all been loaded. The aide summarized as he read the reports. They estimate to be ready within a day. Escorts, Falcon, Justice, Striker, and Dauntless report the same, ready to sail once supplies are loaded. The aide continued. Other than the three escort ships reporting a leak, the transport Fastwind is also awaiting supplies. All ship's captains have reported that the chandlers supplying food and water of the ships appeared to be dragging their feet. The aide re-rolled the last scroll and tying it up with blue ribbon. Supplies were supposed to be delivered with either late or lacking in quantity or quality. What? The John turned his head. Light a fire under the quartermasters. Make sure the chandlers are not shortchanging us. 
My lord, the chandlers appear to be prioritizing the merchant ships first. The aide raised his eyebrow and gave his word a warning. The thirteen howls with the merchants. Fleet comes first. The John spun around and glared angrily. They know better than to push this point. Send the quartermaster with armed sailors and see what those chandlers have to say. Yes, my lord. His aide bowed. I will advise the men to put in a few good words and it should be ease the problems of supplies. Good, the John grinned. Show those money-gloving grubbers what it means to play the fool with me. Sawtooth Mountain Air Base Dragon Pen 1 Blue Thunder stretched his serpentine body out, his hindquarters pointed towards the sky with his tail erect like how a dog stretched its back, as several loud bone-popping cracks could be heard. Ah! He ended with a stretch of a large yawn, showing off an impressive array of sword teeth. Ew, the ground crew coughed. Blue, you need to properly wash your mouth and brush your teeth. It stinks like a cesspool. Blue Thunder gave a tooth grin and a wink. Will you do the honors for me? Hell no. The ground crew wearing the yellow jacket backed off, shaking his head. Your teeth are going to decay if you're not going to do anything about it, and at this rate you eat those sugary snacks. <laughs> Blue Thunder just laughed. Snacks, yummy, especially fried potatoes with ketchup and cheese. Yeah, yeah, okay, now hold still. The yellow jacket ground crew still stood in front of him and raised both his arms, holding a light wand in each hand. All right, rig it up. He yelled and waved at the light ones. Blue Thunder laid still with his limbs folded under his body and closed his eyes as the loading crane hovered over his back and lowered pallets of equipment and supplies down onto his back. A small team of yellow jackets started to swarm over his harness and started to secure the items to his back. All good, the ground crew officer yelled to the rest who raised a thumbs up from their positions and scrambled off Blue Thunder's back after releasing the cables of the crane. The ground crew officer pointed his light wand to the crane operator who nodded and backed the crane away. And another crew at the back raised a thumb up when the crane reached the safety zone. All right, Blue, you're up. The ground crew officer yelled, waving his wands at Blue, who cracked open his eyes and stood up. Check left. Blue Thunder obediently looked to his left limbs, out and flared up his left wing. Good. Check right. He repeated the same steps, but with the right side of his body, rattling the supplies on his back. All secured. Blue, you're good to go. Blue Thunder nodded and craned his head over to see the small crew of four aviators, suited in up and fully covered cold-weather gear, started to climb up onto his back, and secured themselves to the top of his back, trying to settle down as comfortable as they could, while more yellow jackets double-checked the riggings and harnesses. All green, good to go. Roger that, Blue Thunder replied, and started his crawl out of the dragon pen, followed by the yellow markings on the ground. The loudspeaker secured to his harness near his rears bled out. Comms check, comms check. I hear you, Blue Thunder replied in a crude, joking, jury-rigged throat mic as his harness transmitted the draconic voiceover to his flight crew and the control tower. Loud and clear. Mother Dragon 1, you read loud and clear too. Proceed to runway 2. The wind is currently heading in from the northeast-east direction at 30 knots per hour. Weather is clear with a spot of clouds and zero chance of rain. The loudspeakers blared out the information. Blue Thunder bobbed his head, feeling that the humans take things too detailed, which, of course, to him made him feel assured that they care for his safety. 
unlike the Empire who only cared for his fighting strength. Copy that. Mission to resupply the support marines at Rendezvous Point Yellow will proceed as planned. Over. Mother copies. Godspeed, Dragon One. You are cleared for launch. Dragon One taking off. Blue Thunder bunched up his wing muscles and took off at a run, while keeping his wings flat out, and he flapped there strongly, filling his wings with air as he leapt off the ground and a mighty leap. His limbs kept straight, pointing to the rear while flapping his wings furiously, and the wind carried him up into the air. The crew secured to the back of Blue Thunder yelled and cheered wildly as they were jostled around during the takeoff, watching the ground drop away from their feet and they roared into the air. Hee-haw! All right, it's going to be a long flight, the crew chief yelled over the wind. Navigator, check the heading of Blue, give him directions as usual. The rest of the crew unbuckled from their harnesses and attached the movable safety line on Blue's harness and started to check the tight-out supplies, double-checking if any of the items had come loose during takeoff, while the navigator opened up his map and compass and started to pilot their course and giving instructions and directions to Blue. The crew consisted of crew chief who was in charge of the rest of the crew, a navigator who plots the course, the radio operator who handles the communications, and a single flight crew who provides support to everyone else and also works in the riggings. Blue Thunder gently tilted his massive body to face the northeast and the flapping his wings, giving constant speed as they headed towards the rendezvous point yellow where the marines of 2nd Battalion, Eagle Company, Platoon 1 and members of the 101st Arcane Tactics and Intervention, Claymore 1, escorting over 200 free slaves, were heading to. Voledge, Town Garrison, Vice Knight Captain Utho stood pale-faced before the smiling face of the hero, trying his best to keep his legs from showing their trembling. Yes, my lord, the men have been gathered. Good. See, that was easy. Dante smiled as he sat at the desk of the previous commander. The blood dried to a sticky paste on the surface, and the headless body of the commander still sat in the chair, while the second body of sub-commander Month laid headless on the side. His blood turned a rich thick carpet, dark red, mixing together with the blood of the dead commander. Now, let's go hunt ourselves some rebels and runaway slaves, shall we? Dante cordially invited Vice Knight Captain Utho, who swallowed back his fear and nodded hurriedly, quickly left the room with Dante following behind. As they exited the keep, the mustering grounds were filled with soldiers grumbling amongst themselves, wondering why they'd been mustered. Six medium-weight dragons and a single heavy-weight dragon sat at the hindquarters with their crews gathered before the dragons, turning their attention to Utho and Dante as they stood before everyone at the mustering field. Form up, men! Utho yelled as he best parade voice, thankful that his voice did not sound funny under the pressure of the hero. Uh, under order of the great emperor, we have been called out to our oath to serve the emperor's command. We are to move out in pursuit of a band of dangerous rebels and runaway slaves who have ambushed and killed three hundred of our brothers in arms just the day before. Hearing the news, the men growled as anger grew inside the rebels and slaves rose. But fear not, our great emperor send us a hero, Dante, to lead the victory. The men roared and yelled after hearing the hero was here. Dante! 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 They cheered. The fighting spirits raised to the fact that the hero was leading them. Dante! 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 Dante smiled and stood forward. 
Let the sun show us the way to victory. Dante, Dante, Dante. End of chapter. Chapter 153. Rendezvous, Point Yellow. UNS Singapore R&D Laboratory. Senior spaceman Mason scratched his head as he looked at the wooden model made of the ship carpenter, Amar, whom they rescued months ago. He turned the model around and frowned. Is this how long boats were built? Amar nodded. Yes, it's the simplest and fastest way to build them that I know of. The model was wide, shallow draft of a double-banked open deck with rowers to be seated side by side. No, for the speeds we're looking at, this design will rip the whole boat into pieces. Mason shook his head. He had a fast boat handling license back on Earth, and while most naval personnel had some basic training and time on a fast craft on the sea, he had the most experience out of them all. He pointed to the monitor displaying an image that he had a speedboat he used to own. See, the bottom of the hull, it's sharp like a V. At the bow, it's softening into a flat bottom at the stern. It gives it an ability to plane the boat at high speeds. Plane? Amar looked confused. I'm not very familiar with this human word. All right, let me explain as best I can, Mason said. While the boat is at rest, the boat's weight is borne entirely by the buoyant force. At low speeds, every hull acts as a displacement hull meaning that the buoyant force is mainly responsible for supporting the craft. Do you understand so far? Roughly, Amar nodded as his years of sailor gave him a rough idea of what Mason was trying to explain. The buoyant force is what keeps the boat afloat, right? Mason nodded. That is correct. Now, as the speed increases, hydrodynamic lift increases as well. Um, what hydrodynamic means is the motion of the water and the effects on water in movement. He gave the best and simplest explanation he could think of. Amar nodded, gesturing for Mason to go on. Okay, as the speeds increase, the hydrodynamic lift will push the hull upwards. Mason demonstrates by placing the wooden model in a longboat on the table while tilting the bow of the model upwards. This is called a plane. You might want to ask Dr. Sharon to explain it more on you. But as speed goes up, the bow also lifts up due to the hydrodynamic lift. How fast must the boat go to have this hydrodynamic lift? Amar asked. Four cables, six cables. He had never seen anything such an extraordinary thing happen before in his many years at sea. Um, one cable is roughly at one terran knot, which is one nautical mile per hour, which is roughly 1.85 kilometers. Mason mumbled as he calculated the speed that the elves used for measuring the sea travel, which was by cables instead of knots. I say roughly 10 or 11 knots, Mason answered, about 18 to 20 kilometers per hour. 10 cables of speed, Amar's eyes went wide. The fastest flying clipper is only at 16 cables, and it is more than 10 times the size of a longboat, and the number of sails needed for that speed. Well, they are using magic power of wind and magic. Mason grinned. We are using motors to power the boat. Now we're going to pull the prototype out. He smiled and hooked his arm around Amar's shoulder. Come on. Trust me, this boat is going to be the fastest thing you have ever seen. It'll have at least a sustainable speed of 38 knots per hour and a max speed of 44 knots. 38 and 44. Armor felt like he was dreaming. Oh, that Mason is pulling the wool over his eyes. Are you sure such a thing is possible? Oh, come on. Have you seen our airplanes? Mason tisked. 
You think that we can't make ships to go fast in the sea? Amar felt a sudden thrill go up his spine. Really? He had never felt so excited for a long time. Maybe since the first time he built his own boat when he finished his apprenticeship at the shipyards in the Isles. Let's do it, yes. <laughs> Basin laughed at joy and excitement shown on Amar's facial expression. All right, I don't have any shipbuilding experience, and that I'd leave to your knowledge, but I do know some modern concepts of boatcraft, and that I will try my best to teach you, and let's see where we can come up together. Yes, yes, you were saying that the bow being a V-shape. Skies over the uncharted forest. Third Sergeant Stamford, formerly Petty Officer of the UNS Singapore, had transferred over to the newly formed Air Force, and his naval rank switched to the Air Force rank. Riding on the back of Blue Thunder, he was the only human of the crew chief of the other three members of his flank crew. With a strong bone-chilling wind whipping his thickly insulated body with a full face mask, he grinned at the endless sea of blue-green trees beneath him, with a jagged peaks of the mountains to his left of his view. Damn, this is a view worth dying for. What is it, chief? Corporal Barkley, the navigator, yelled, as he looked up from his map that was velcroed to his thigh. He was seated in a bucket chair that was part of Blue Thunder's harness. Most of the others were also seated in the twin rows of chairs, and were either dozing off or admiring the view. Nothing, just not thinking how beautiful it is up here, Stamford yelled back. When the Air Force was just formed, he volunteered immediately, hoping that he could serve alongside a dragon, and his wish was granted. Having grown up in the southwest England, Cornwall, and hearing stories of knights and dragons from the great-grandfather since young, seeing real dragons brought him back to the stories of chivalry of the old days of man. I always wanted to ride a dragon, Stamford yelled again. Damn, this is awesome. Ten minutes to rendezvous point yellow, Barkley yelled back. Blue, you got that. Yes, I hear you, Barkley. I see the river. Blue Thunder's voice came in crisply in their headsets. All right, people, brace yourselves, Stamford yelled into the radio. Alzi is in sight. Ten minutes. The rest of the crew quickly checked their buckles and ensured that they were secured, before gripping onto the holding bars at a set at the side of their seats and braced as Blue Thunder made a gentle dive towards the ground. The snaking river came into sight, parts of it sparkling under the sun, where the forest canopy exposed the river to the skies, and the blue thunder flared his wings, dropping his airspeed as he glided in, to land on the only area that was not covered in trees, which was the river itself. He beat his wings rapidly as he came to a slow hover, and his hind legs sank into the cool, clear running water. Reaching up to his hind calves and mindful of the passengers, he gently lowered his front body and forward limbs into the river, barely shaking his crew. Touchdown! Blue Thunder gave a loud, tired puff. Phew! I need some sleep and meat. All right, you big lizard, get us off of the river and get us unloaded, and then you can have your sleep and eat, Stamford yelled. Yes, Sarge, Blue Thunder rumbled as he climbed up the banks of the river and flopped on all fours, flat on the rocky river bank. Done! He folded his wing in and rested half of his head onto the river, letting the waters run over his chin, and he stuck his tongue out, licking the water lazily. All right, let's unload the cargo and wait for the marines to come, Stamford ordered, and the rest of the crew started to unclip the restraints holding the cargo and moving them off Blue Thunder's back. 
It took them an hour to fully unload everything off of Blue Thunder's back. By then, the midday sun was blazing away at them, and all of them were hot and sweaty from the work. Deck, you're on watch. Set up an MG and a radio to HQ that we have landed on schedule and see if you can raise the marines, Stamford said. The rest of you cover up the cargo with ground sheets and then get some food and rest. We rotate the watch every two hours. The tired men nodded and went about their work, and everyone went for a quick wash up in the cooling river before settling down into the shade of the trees, nibbling at dried rations or having a shut-eye. Private Deck climbed back up into the snoring blue thunder and attached the MG support onto the harness at the right shoulder of the sleeping dragon. He locked the bolts of the support into place and hefted the MG-1 out of the storage container, carefully locking it into place, followed by attaching the roll magazine in and working the action of the machine gun before putting it on safe. Next, he sat down on the bucket seat behind the machine gun and unslung his radio out. Dragon One, calling Mother, do you copy? Over. They're receiving you. Over. Dragon One has landed, standing by to receive Marine Force. Over. Mother, roger that. It wasn't even an hour when the whistle had been blown from the forest edge and two camouflage marines walked out waving and deck waved back. Hey guys, the marines are here. Soon, the rest of the marines and the ragged-looking slaves appeared, and the slaves were frightened by the large, yawning mouth of Blue Thunder, who was woken up by the sudden bustle around him, and his sleepy rumbling, I'm hungry. Go hunt something, Stamford shooed him off angrily when he poked his massive snout into the hot, rancid air at Stamford. Bring home dinner. Deck quickly secured the MG away and scrambled down the back of Blue Thunder, who quickly bounced off into the sky, looking for prey. Sir, Stamford greeted Lieutenant Joseph and Claymore One, steam leader, as they gathered for a quick talk. Surprise here will be enough to launch you guys to the rendezvous point, which is Point Blue. Lieutenant Joseph nodded. Can you medevac some of the more seriously wounded? I can take roughly six to eight stretchers back on Blue, but his landings and takeoffs are not exactly gentle, Stanford advised. It might not be safe for those that can't be moved. How about the Valkyries? Terrier asked. Can't they come and get the wounded off? There are too many trees in the vicinity, Stanford replied. We can't land those birds. We are also using the river to drop in, but... It's still too risky to get the Valkyries over such a small opening in the canopy. And HQ doesn't want to risk the valuable asset, Lieutenant Joseph sighed. All right, let's see how we can rig up the medivac on the dragon. I got a couple of serious cases of a high-profile target that the hero wants. Chief, Stanford comms suddenly cracked alive. Enemy dragons, I got three on my tail, all medium weight. Blue Thunder voice roared over the comms. What? Everyone froze and quickly headed out to the break in the canopy over the river and stared out at the sky. Stand to, stand to, Lieutenant Joseph roared, startled the nearby marines and slaves. Incoming aerial dragons, move it. The men quickly sprung into action, scrambling away from the open areas and directing the frightened slaves to take shelter amongst the trees and keeping out of sight, while they manned their weapons and kept watch over the surrounding area and skies. Suddenly, the shadow darted over the river, followed by a few more, and Blue Thunder was seen flapping his wings as he led three other smaller but faster dragons with blue rigging trappings of the Empire away from the rendezvous point. Oh crap, the Empire's found us.
End of chapter. Chapter 154. Dogfight. Blue Thunder dipped his wing and did a sharp swerve in midair, dodging the raking claws of the smaller empire dragon that dove down from above. He retaliated with a sweep of his tail and turned his way, his barbed end scoring a small gash along the back of the squeaking dragon. A couple crossbow bolts slammed against his flanks from behind blind spot and his hard scales managed to deflect the bolts away, the pinpricks irritating Blue Thunder more than damaging him. Evade! Evade! Coming from under you, a loud speaker crackled to life and Blue Thunder came to a sudden hover and a shadowy shape darted up from before him, missing him by meters. Get to safety! Blue Thunder growled as the attack that nearly gutted him and glared at the insolent dragon that circled back for another attack. He stayed hovering on the spot and sucked in the air into his lungs, filling up his chest, glowing slightly. The Empire Dragons and their riders seeing him starting to glow, yelled out in warning, and they started to split, making themselves as small of a target as possible. Blue Thunder spat out a ball of fire at the nearest Empire Dragon and dove downwards, aiming for a small clearing over the river where the rest of the marines had gathered. His fireball barely touched any of the dodging dragons, but it distracted them long enough for him to disappear into the canopy of the forest. Lieutenant Joseph peered up from the cover of the trees, seeing the Empire dragon circling in the sky and cursed. How did they find us? Crew Chief Stamford frowned. They must have spotted Blue Thunder while he was hunting and coming within sight. His harness must have given away that there was no one else here to use his gear like that. A crash came from the undergrowth and all men spun around, aiming the weapons at the source of the noises, and a draconic snout soon poked out from the trees and rumbled. It's me. Blue, Stamford ran out, gesturing for the marines to halt their fire. Are you okay? He came up next to the panting dragon. I'm okay, Blue Thunder replied, just slightly tired and hungry. Stamford looked worried at the condition of Blue Thunder. He had burnt up a lot of calories just flying over and also a short combat in the skies. They have some food for Blue Thunder, but the plan was supposed to be for Blue Thunder to forage for his own food while the rations of Blue Thunder were to be used in an emergency, like now. All right, we're going to feed you, Stamford said. Any injuries? Not sure, Blue Thunder replied, as he craned his neck over his own body trying to see if there were any wounds. But there is a bad itch in my neck. Stamford nodded, waving for the rest of the crew over. Get his rations and give him a once-over, check if there are any injuries on him. The men nodded and went to work. Stamford climbed onto Blue Thunder's harness and started to inspect the harness condition and also for signs of any injury. As he stood on his back, he could see waves of heat emanating from Blue Thunder's body. You want to lay down on the river there? Stamford asked. The trees should provide some cover for you. Sure. Blue Thunder nodded and started to make his way over to the river, where it was covered by the trees. The half sank himself into the water and the moaned in bliss. Much better. Chief, Dak yelled, gesturing him over to the rear of Blue Thunder's back. What is it? Stamford came over to saw what Dak was pointing at. A stubby crossbow bolt had stuck deep between the overlapping scales. Damn, get the first aid kit over here. Blue, you got a crossbow bolt in your rear, Stamford yelled, and Blue sneaked his head back to try and see. You just hang tight there and we'll get it out. Oh, no wonder it itches, Blue grimaced. 
Get it out quick. Hold on, buddy, Dex said, as he came back with a first aid kit and looked more than like a toolbox. He removed a large pair of pliers and clamped the jaws onto the bolt. On three, two, one, and... Ah! He pulled the bloody bolt out in a long pull, the wound sucking at the glittering arm-length long bolt. And it's out. Baking Blue Thunder gave a grunt in pain. Thick, glistening, dark red blood started to flow out from the wound. Stamford took the bucket of water from Barkley and poured it over the wound, washing the blood away, and with his flashlight, he peered into the wound. Looks clean, not poisoned. He took a package of clotting powder and dumped it all into the wound, before stuffing a wad of gauze on top of the wound underneath the scales. He took the offered roll of duct tape and started taping the gauze against Blue Thunder's scales, making sure that it was tight. How are you feeling? Stamford asked as he'd hopped down from the riverside. He started to wash his arms thick with the dragon blood. Hungry, Blue Thunder grumbled, but it's not so itchy now. Good, Stamford climbed up to the riverbanks. Here, eat some rations first. Blue Thunder looked at the small pile of blocky cardboard-colored ration bars and made a face. I want meat. Eat this for now, big baby. Stamford shook his head and smiled. It's high in calories, chocked full of whole grains, honey, fats, and all the vitamins a growing boy like you needs. Blue Thunder sighed and started munching away at the blocks of ration bars, sadly. Leaving Blue Thunder to his meal, Stamford went back to Lieutenant Joseph with Sergeant Tyria in discussion. They both waved him over and said, We need to move as soon and fast. One of the dragons have gone back to report, and I'm not sure that if they spotted us in the forest. Dragons have a great eyesight for hunting, Stamford said. They can spot a goblin hiding in the bushes a hundred meters away, so I'm certain that they must have spotted us already. Then all of our more reason why we must move out now, Tyria said. Delaying longer will only allow the enemy to come closer. Lieutenant Joseph nodded. Yes, but we need to do something about them, he pointed to the sky. If they keep following us, the enemy will still know where we are. HQ says at least two hours more for any aerial support, the marine radio operator said. The wind is against the planes, that is why it takes longer to come here. Damn, two hours. Tyria cursed. A lot can happen in two hours. Well, we can rig up blue for aerial combat, Samford suddenly spoke out. He does have a mounting points for machine guns, and we can take down those three medium weights before the Empire returns here. Both Joseph and Tyria looked at Stamford. You're confident to take down those medium weights, not to mention the enemy reinforcements coming. You guys got to take the risk of fighting more than two dragons. Well, sir, isn't this why we signed on? Stanford grinned. The risk and the fight. Well said, Lieutenant Joseph nodded. What do you need? It's all good. I'll get my crew to load up and secure it for combat, Stanford replied. Head towards Point Blue while we're distracting the dragons. So, even if we fail, at least you guys can get away. Just... That we can't medivac any wounded now. Joseph and Tyria nodded. Godspeed. Deck attached the machine gun support into place on the back of Blue's harness near the tail of his spine, snapping the MG-1 into place and loading the drum magazine in. He ensured that the spare ammunition secured against the harness was properly stored and settled down into the bucket seat, which the machine gun aiming to the aft, or the tail of Blue Thunder. Stamford double-checked the rest of his crew, making sure everyone was secured and ready. 
three machine guns all manned, one on each side of the shoulder of Blue Thunder and the remaining gun at the tail. He checked his shotgun, making sure that it was fully loaded and properly strapped against his body, and yelled, No green! Clear for launch! Blue Thunder gave a grunt and made a run towards the open canopy, the marines yelling their support as Blue Thunder bounced off into the open air. And, with several flaps, his massive wings disappearing from the view of the marines. Contact left! Bartley manned the left shoulder gun yelled into the comms, and Blue Thunder banked left and they headed towards the two dark specks in the sky, going for the kill. Here they come, Stamford yelled. Watch your arcs of fire. I want no one to shoot up Blue, especially his wings. Make sure your guns are arc-locked. Roger. Yes, Chief. Got it. Blue Thunder sucked in the air and spat out a ball of fire directly into the Empire Dragons, which weave right, dodging the fireball, and Private Luth, manning the right gun, opened up with his MG-1 spewing 8.5mm tracer-directed into the path of the surprised Empire Dragon. The new 8.5mm rounds, traveling at 807 meters per second, missed the flying dragon, but Luth, using the bright tracing rounds as a guide, managed to correct his aim, firing into the path of the dragon. The 19-gram bullets hammered into the body of the dragon, ignoring the tough scales and torn through muscles, bones, and flesh like paper. The whole engagement lasted four seconds, before the Empire Dragon flew past and out of the arc of fire of Luth's gun. But that four seconds had sent thirty-four rounds fired from the machine gun into the Empire Dragon, which over twenty had stricken the dragon. A stream of dark liquid could be seen trading the dragon as it flopped over to the side and spiraled down to smash into the canopy with a mighty crash, sending Virums rapping into flight from the trees. Scratch one dragon, Luth yelled excitedly as he leaned his body over, watching the down dragon doing cartwheels amongst a thick canopy before disappearing into the forest. Woohoo! Good girl, Stanford yelled back as he kept his eyes on the other Empire dragon who seemed to hesitate after seeing the death of the brood. Go for the last one while it's still confused. Blue Thunder growled happily and flapped his wings harder before keeping his wings in and swooping down towards the startled Empire Dragon. With his claws out, the men on board yelled and whooped as gravity seemed to disappear and they went diving down like a roller coaster ride. The Empire Dragon tried to get out of the way but was just one second too slow. Blue Thunder's full body weight of 33 tons slammed onto the left wing of the panicking Empire Dragon snapping the shoulder off, while the T-Rex-sized talons of Blue Thunders gouged against the flank of the screaming dragon, its rider, and a small crew staring wide-eyed in horror, visible even as the dopey-looking crystal goggles. The screaming empire dragon tried desperately to flap its wings, but only its right wing functioned. Its left dangled uselessly, with its lifeblood pouring out like a tap. It folded inwards and fell from the sky, together with the screaming crew. Blue Thunder did a slow circle over the area as the Empire Dragon slammed into the uncharted forest, the canopy barely able to soften its death ball, and a small hole appeared in the sea of trees and a small flying virums burst out angrily from their nests. Good girl, Stamford yelled again, to which Blue Thunder gave a pleasant grunt. Wait, what's that? He pointed to the horizon in the distance as he narrowed his eyes and quickly pulled out his field glasses and saw several specks approaching them in the air. Oh, noes, Blue Thunder mumbled. 
more empire. End of chapter. Chapter 155. First air-to-air dragon combat. Blue Thunder gave a grunt as he lined up his body straight at the approaching empire dragons. Nair splitting up, he roared over the wind as he noted the dragons had split into two groups. Yes, I see them, Stampede yells. Two of the midweights are holding together with a single heavy, and the other three are vectoring in for an attack. A single heavyweight dragon with silver-trimmed blue banners and streamers beat its wings rapidly as it sought to gain altitude, together with its two escorts. Blue Thunder just barely could see the dark figures clinging onto its back as it rose higher. They're going in for a pincher attack, Blue Thunder growled. The heavy looks like it's going for a height advantage, while the other three distract and harass us. Ignore the heavy, we take the trio first, Stamford yelled, as he gauged the distance and speed between the enemy. We do a high-speed fire pass, followed by a turned circle portside. All guns are to fire as they bear. We let the heavy come up from our aft. Most likely, they'll do a swooping dive down at a tail. Stamford twisted in his seat as he looked at the rear. Deck, make sure to give him that heavy good dose of lead. With pleasure, chief. All right, let's do it, Stamford yelled. Let's show them ground pounders of what an air force can do. Blue Thunder accelerated, putting his wings strongly, causing more wind against his serpentine body and gliding through the air like a fish in the sea. The dotted figures in front of them quickly resolved into three silverback-scaled razorback dragons with streamers tied to the legs and wingtips, boldly displaying the Empire's colors. They broke their formation and aimed for Blue Thunder in three different directions, aiming to rake the claws against his flank with the lead razorback distracting him head-on. Dive down, Stamford yelled as he clutched his shotgun tightly against his chest. A sense of gravity disappeared and sent the men whooping as Blue Thunder dived under the reaches of the dragons who tried to box him in. And the machine guns fired, breaking the underside of the confused razorbacks. Stamford gave a wordless yell as he pumped the shot after shot into the underbelly of the lead dragon who cried out in anger at the misploy and the rear machine gun fired. Stamford caught sight of a line of tracer sparks off into the underbelly of the dragon before it vanished from view. Did we get them? Stamford yelled, checking left and right, making sure that everyone was still in place while digging into his pouches for shotgun shells. I think so, someone yelled back. Blue Thunder craned his neck back as he turned to loop back towards the action. I can't see the heavy and its escorts, he yelled as he looked up in panic. Seven o'clock high, coming in fast. Dak yelled as he spotted the shadow against the sun. It's coming in from the sun. Break left, break, break, break! Stamford yelled urgently, and Blue Thunder did a sharp tilt left, and the swooping shadows burst out from the skies, barely missing Blue Thunder. The force of its passage sent Blue Thunder struggling to keep balance. Holy frick! Got no line of fire, can't see crap. Incoming left flank, Barkley yelled as he spotted the silvery shape darting in from the left side. He twisted his body, trying to bring the MG-1 to bear on its target, but the raising wing cunningly stayed out of line of sight, using the flapping wings of Blue Thunder as cover as it inched closer. I got him, Deck yelled as he swung the gun over, his wire sights hovering over the dragon where three of its crew could be seen firing and loading crossbow bolts at them. He angled the gun slightly forward and fired, Bright traces ripping through the barrel and into the path of the dragon, making it swerve away in panic. But before it disappeared from sight, underneath Blue Thunder, 
Dex saw his shots landing on the crew members, their bodies turning limp as the dragon dived away. I got its crew. Stamford leaned back over Blue Thunder to peer at the disengaged dragon. Damn, we need to get some guns at the bottom. Blue Thunder gave a dismissive snort and Stamford felt his body bellowing up, followed by a roar and a smoking ball of fire raining down towards the diving dragon, and surprisingly hitting it square in the back. Ha! Take that! What a lucky shot! Stamford shook his head, to which Blue Thunder snorted again. There is no such thing as luck, Blue tilted his head and proudly, I'm just good. Watch your front, you dumb beast, Stamford yelled. Praise yourself later, but we will got five dragons to go. Make it three, Deck yelled back. I just saw one crashing into the trees and another limping away at five o'clock. Stamford grabbed his field glasses hanging around his neck and quickly scanned the horizon. Seeing the dragon laboring its way across the sky, with what appeared to be large drops of blood raining off of its body, the dragon won't make it, gauging by the amount of blood it's leaking. Tally-ho, Luth yelled and pointed. Three o'clock high. Blue, get us some altitude, Stamford commanded, as he turned his glasses over to the direction Luth yelled, seeing the remaining dragons having regrouped and were coming back for another pass. Roger, Blue Thunder flapped his wings mightily and swung his body towards the approaching Empire dragons. Come get some! He roared and spat out another fireball at the other group as the distance closed. The Empire Heavy also spat a fireball out, which Blue Thunder dodged, and the guns opened up. Dante stood in the crown of the ever-blue tree, watching the aerial dogfight in interest. He smiled as he leapt from tree easily, and used the branches to keep and navigate his way towards the battle. I found you. Blue Thunder gave a yelp as a pain of a bolt of lightning gouged his flank, melting his dark blue scales and fusing them against his flesh. He roared and spat a ball of fire at the enemy Empire Heavy as it flew past him, missing the dragon as it bent its body away agilely from the fireball. I'm angry! Blue Thunder roared as he chased the other heavy through the skies. Stop running! Luth cursed as Blue Thunder's motions made him drop a fully loaded 75-round drum magazine off the side and into the sea of trees. He braced himself properly and dug another drum out and hugged it onto it tightly as Blue Thunder went into another bout of aerobatics. I'm gonna be sick, as he was thrown left and right in the sky. Watch your four o'clock, Stamford yelled, as the enraged Razorback, which he recognized as one with the crew decimated, swooped in with its jaws wide open and its claws stretched out. Stamford raised his shotgun and fired, while Deck swung his MG-1 around and fired, a short distance making it hard to miss, and the combined fire pounded the dragon into a bloody meat. Blue Thunder tried to swerve out of the falling dead dragon's way, but just was too slow Then the dead dragon clipped part of Blue's wingtip, making him scream as the wingtip bone fractured from the impact. Also, immediately, they went into a spiral, the men screaming as Blue Thunder fought back the pain and tears. He barely managed to recover from the spiraling dive, but in the process, he had lost too much speed and altitude, desperately trying to lump his way into the skies above the canopy. Seeing the weakened state, the remaining Razorbacks screamed in triumph. They darted down from the skies, going in for the kill. It swooped down, ready to latch onto the back of Blue Thunder and rake its claws into its spine, only to meet another barrage of machine gun and shotgun fire. 
its bullet-riddled body crashing into the sea of trees behind Blue Thunder. Stamford wiped the vomit stains off of his face and, with wobbly fingers, shoved shell after shell into his shotgun as he reloaded. Oh my god, I thought we were dead there. There's still one more, Blue Thunder growled, his right wing barely able to move, as he glided gently down into the treetops. I can't find any place to land. Incoming, Dag yelled as he saw the streaking ball of fire coming from down in the Empire Heavy. He swung his machine gun up and fired off a long stream of tracers, which the dragon dodged away, and the glow of the magic shield could be seen as a few lucky bullets impacted. Blue Thunder tilted his body away from the fireball, which exploded, sending a small cloud of smoke upwards. He quickly leaned his body towards the explosion and using the hot air current to gain a bit of attitude. Knowing that he'd crashed into the trees, his crew would most likely die or suffer from serious injuries. Even himself won't be spared, and landing on a hover into the trees will only tap him into the canopy, making him an open target as he needs time to break through the thick branches and into the cover of the trees. Soon, another fireball rained down on them and a bolt of lightning tore into his tail, making the tears form into his eyes. Dragon One, coming over. This is Gold Leader. The radio suddenly turned into life and Deck quickly reached to the receiver. This is Dragon One. We receive you over. Deck yelled as he craned his neck left and right looking for the horizon. Gold Leader, stand by. I believe the big bad bully is on your tail. The welcoming voice sounded so sweet to the crew that they and even Blue Thunder gave a loud cheer. Suddenly, black dots dropped out from the sun, fright on top of the unsuspecting Empire heavyweight. Four AF-1 Cobras appeared and the twin pylon-mounted 20mm autocannon gun pods fired, sending 129 grams of projectiles at 670 meters per second, screaming down at a rate of 520 rounds per minute. The 20mm autocannon ammunition configuration was high-explosive shells, followed by two armor-piercing shells, and the fifth shell was a tracer. The magic shield barely held up for three seconds when the explosives and the armor-piercing shells detonated against the magic defenses of the unsuspecting Empire Dragon. It shattered, and the magical backlash slammed into the mage who cast the manatee the spell. He jerked back and coughed out blood before the remaining shells that encountered no more resistance turned the crew into steaming pieces of unidentified meat and blowing large chunks of flesh off the screaming dragon. As the cobras pulled up from their attack, what was left of the dragon rained over the three sections of the uncharted forest in bloody chunks of gore and blood. Yes! Blue Thunder and his crew cheered as they saw the Empire Dragon literally explode into pieces. Air Force, for the win. Gold leader to Dragon One, your wing doesn't look too good. The lead cobra radioed over as they regrouped and buzzed over Blue Thunder, checking them out. Dragon One, we took a beating. Need to touch down immediately. Deck radioed back to Stamford's directions. Roger that, Dragon One, diverting bearing 223 degrees. There's a river clearing approximately two kilometers away. Over. Gold leader radioed back. Think Blue can make it? Roger, stand by, Deck replied. Blue, you heard that. Blue, panting heavily and barely gave a grunt in reply. His eyes half closed in pain. Just tell me where to lie. Got it, Berkeley checking his instruments yelled. Blue, turn left, eight o'clock heading. You can do it. Blue grunted and beat his wings weakly, 
trying his best to keep afloat in the air. As soon as the glitter of the snaking river could be seen amongst the trees, we survived our first air-to-air dragon combat. End of chapter. Chapter 156 I found you. Uncharted Forest, 292 kilometers from the Sawtooth Mountain Pass. Lieutenant Joseph looked up as he heard a muffled ripping echo in the skies, but the thick canopy barely allowed any view into the sky. Even sound was muffled and suppressed by the thick cover, making it hard to gauge where it was coming from. Come on, move it, guys. Lieutenant Joseph encouraged the tired slaves as they tried to push through the forest. Cheerio! He gestured to the Claymore One leader over. Think you can lay some false trails and cover our movements? Terrier paused and glanced around the forest before nodding. Got it. You got any clay malls or explosives? Lieutenant Joseph nodded and pointed. Get it from Asagi. He gestured to the small quadpedial walker, climbing over the tree root with a large baggage on its back. Following the hulking orkin wearing a barely fitting helmet and a sleeveless uniform with a couple ammo belts crisscrossed over its chest. In his large, muscular arms, he cradled a large machine gun that looked almost too small for him. Alessian used some guys for support. Got it, Terrier said and gave a low whistle, signaling the rest of Claymore one over. All right, guys, we got a cramped job, he said as he took the rest of the team as they gathered around him. We're gonna lay some surprises for any chance of pursuit at our rear, and also spells to cover and mislead the enemy. Terrier gave a quick brief. Whatever we need, explosives or mines, we get it from the Gollum supplies. Questions? Why the fuck are we doing this crap? It's a grumbled. Can't the Marines handle it? Why is it always Claymore One got to do all the crap jobs? Shut it, Tyria growled. But you trust a bunch of FNGs, freaking new guys, to wipe your rear. Now I know you guys are feeling angry and sad at Doth's incident. Tyria lowered his tone. That hero who killed our friend and buddy is out there, and he's coming again. He pointed to the rear. And we are going to give him a surprise party when he comes, Tyria said while looking into the eyes of each of his team. Now, what do you say? Time for round two, Haldi had growled. Let's kill the son of a witch once and for all. Hell yeah, Tavol nodded, rubbing his bandaged arm. He's got to pay for Doth. The rest nodded in agreement. Okay, we're gonna split into three sectors, left, center, and right flank. Tyria pointed to three directions. Aldiad and Young, you cover the left flank, Hitsu and Loke, you take the center, and Taval and me will take the right. Tyria ordered. Mine it, trap it, lay your magic formations or whatever the crap you want, but do it quickly. Questions? How much time? Loke asked. Maybe half a day or less, Tyria replied. We have no idea. It could be even an hour. Won't it be a hazard for the long run if traps and mines are not triggered? Young asked in concern. We mark it on a map if possible and have the marines clear them in the future, Terria replied. We don't have the luxury of worrying about hazards now. Any questions? The men shook their heads and pondered what they should set up on their side areas. Terria nodded. Good! Grab what you need and who you need. The lieutenant has given us the okay on using his men. Sergeant Tyria. A marine sergeant appeared behind Tyria. The lieutenant has sent us over to assist you. Tyria did a quick look and saw two sections worth of marines had gathered up, half of what Joseph had in his force. 
The golem called Asagi was curiously looking left and right at the ongoings as it stood at the edge of the crowd. All right, Sergeant, um, Emberstone, Daria read the name tag of his uniform, split the men up into three groups, and also all the explosives and mines from the golem and do the same. Sergeant Emberstone nodded and started directing the gathered marines, pointing and gesturing at the golem while getting the men to form up three groups. Sergeant Tyria, it's done. Good, Tyria strolled up. All right, you guys are here to help us lay some surprises for the blue boys who are coming. We don't know how much time we have. It might be an hour or a day. So work fast and work safe. He pointed to one group. You guys follow Altiad and Young. You with them and the rest with me. Now, let's get to work. Hoorah! Somewhere at the uncharted forest, Blue Thunder painfully stretched out his broken wing, allowing Luth and Deck to bind his broken wing bones in piece of wood and duct tape. He chomped down on an unappetizing ration blocks inside. I want meat. Come on, Blue, soldier up. Stamford patted Blue's rigged head. Wait while more, and I'll get you boys to hunt you something later. Promise? Blue Thunder made a plate-sized puppy eyes at Stamford, who shook his head at Blue Thunder's antics. Promise, Stamford replied, when it's all safe and clear. Blue Thunder gave a grunt as Barkley pulled out another crossbow bolt and stuck from Blue Thunder's left shoulder. Damn, another few hands and this would have skewered Luth. How is it? Stamford climbed up next to Barkley, who was stuffing the wound with anti-clotting powder. Removed four crossbow bolts, applied burn cream and three lightning bolt strikes, patched several torn wing membranes on both wings with duct tape and... uh, Barkley gestured to the two who were still splinting Blue Thunder's broken wing bones. That. Stamford nodded and turned to watch Blue Thunder, swallowing the remaining of the ration block. He should be fine with enough rest and calories, Markley said. But the wing at this condition, he might not be able to fly long distances and his speed will be greatly affected. Meat will heal me fast. Blue Thunder snaked his serpentine head back to look at both of them. Meat makes it all good. Yes, yes, you glutton. Stamford chewed away his head. Get some shut-eye. We might need you to move at any time. Blue Thunder gave a pout and lowered his head back to the ground and closed his eyes. And before long, a bubble appeared over his nostrils as he gave off a light snooze. The crew and the ammunition status, Stanford watched as the bubble of snot grew and expanded and contracted following the rhythm of Blue Thunder's breathing. No injuries, just shaken. Barkley turned his attention to the two other who were packing up the first aid toolbox. Ammunition is down to roughly one and a half drum magazines per gun. Gold Squadron is providing as much cover as possible. Deck yelled as he stowed away his first aid toolbox, but they only have enough fuel to stay in the AO operations of area for roughly another two hours or less. Stanford nodded. Let's wash up and take a break for now, and with Blue in the state, we can't do much either, but at least we are cleared the skies. Oh yeah, I got puke all over my body, Lutz said as he started to strip his uniform off and ran towards the river with Deck to wash up. I'll keep watch for now, Stamford said. Later we might need to do some hunting for Blue and our dinner before it gets dark. Got it. The hero paused his movements in the trees as he cocked his head, listening to the sounds of the forest. Now, now, what do we have here? He closed his eyes and from his body covering him in a warm yellow-white glow manifested, granting him an increase to his abilities. 
He could hear the clanking and clashes of metal against metal at his rear, where the rest of the Empire forces were following him were making their clumsy way through the forest. For the past day, they had airlifted every soldier into the forest, closest to where the enemy is at, as Dante's mental link with Evelyn was still unsevered. Dante himself personally destroyed the large swath of forest, enabling the dragons to land the men, before making return trips to pick up more. Only when the dragons had transported everyone did he send them out to look for any traces of the rebels and the strange barbarians with demonic thundersticks in the direction where the sensed Evelyn's life force. He judged that they were roughly half a day or less away when one of the dragons returned, bearing news of discovering an unaffiliated dragon, but matching the description of the Empire heavyweight dragon that was said to have turned traitor. Dante left the soldiers behind and pushed forward, his mental link with Evelyn telling him that he was roughly in the right direction. Now, crouching in the trees, he closed his eyes and opened his inner eye, groping for a sense of where Evelyn's life force was at. He opened his eyes with a smile, feeling the strength of the mental tug. Knowing himself to be very close, and he kicked off from the tree branch, the force of his leap shattering the branch as he flew for meters onto another tree branch, his magic barrier around him negating the whipping branches and trees. Time for vengeance, models. Private Slow grunted as he stretched out his strained back after spending half an hour digging around in the forest floor and planting claymore mines and rigging them up to tripwires. He pointed harshly at Asagi who peered from next to him at the barely visible wire that he set knee length across two roots. No, no, back, dangerous. He shooed the curious spider golem away. Danger, kaboom! He gestured with his finger, opening up like an explosion and pointed to the corner of the tree. Staying. Asagi seemed downcast as it lowered its head and trotted sadly to stand at where Slow pointed. Slow gave a sigh and gave it a pat. Wait here, be done soon. Isagi gave a sort of wagger in his armored-plated stone body and settled down at the tree, waiting patiently for Slow to finish up. Sarge, I'm done here. Slow reeled as he covered the claymore aimed between the two ever-blue trees with trunks wider than he could hug with his two hands. Come on, Isagi, let's go. Suddenly the tree branch snapped loudly and from above a small shower of leaves flooded down. Slow jerked his head up in surprise and saw a slightly glowing elf half-kneading on the tree branch that was snapped in half with one part dangling in the air. What? Slow roared out. Contact! Dante landed hard on the tree branch and looked down, seeing a strange monster with bags and boxes on its back next to an orkin dressed in a strange manner. He gave a grin to the orkin who yelled at an unknown language and seemed to fumble for something on the body of the strange four-legged creature. Dante's eyes narrowed as his grin grew wider as he recognized the weapon of the strange orkin was lifting up. It looked like one of those cursed thundersticks. Bound you. Slow grabbed his MG1, which he stacked on the back of Asagi, cursing at himself for leaving his weapon, and for a brief moment his drill sergeant words came crashing into his head. Never leave your weapon from your side at all times. Oh, I'm gonna get drilled out. Slow yelped as he remembered the painful memories of basic training. Contact! Hero sighted! He roared again and swung his MG1 to hip-fire stance, snapping off a safety and firing, sending a meter-long muzzle flashing into the forest 
and spent in empty cartridges flying off into the forest ground. Dante smiled wildly as he watched the slow-motion movements of the orkin, and he leapt down, his arms reaching to the back of his waist where his pair of swords hung on their own scabbard sat. The twin gleam of silvery light flashed out, and the orkin yelled in pain and rage. As twin fountains of blood erupted from the body in a neck shape, it dropped the roaring thunderstick and fell against a weird-looking four-legged creature, which appeared to have arms that gripped onto the falling orkin and started to drag it away into the trees. Dante laughed as he watched the antics of the creature, seemingly trying to save the orkin. He took a step forward and slashed down on the orkin, wanting to finish it off as he knew the orkin were very tough and hard to kill. But to his amazement, the strange creature blocked his sword slash, sending a numbing sensation down his arm with a loud clank, reverberating from the body of the creature when his sword hit it. Huh? What manner of creature is this? End of chapter Chapter 157 Cobra Down Skies over the uncharted forest Gold group leader Flight Sergeant Legos Waver glanced over his flight instruments, giving a hard rap against the fuel gauge, and noted the fuel level and flight time and pencil stub against the notepad, velcroed to his right trouser tight. All right, Gold Group, he triggered his throat mic. Check your fuel levels and report in over. Gold 2, fuel at 47%, over. Gold 4, fuel down to 48%, over. 5 here, we're at 45%, over. Roger, Gold Group. Legos did a quick calculation and keyed his mic again. All right, report in when the fuel is at 35%. Out. He gauged that they had roughly less than an hour of flight time in the area. Commander Peter had ordered the flight of FA-1 Cobras off the runway and positioned them in patrol around the rendezvous point blue. They barely started their patrol when word came that the enemy flight of dragons had ambushed Dragon 1, and Legos directed his men to make all haste to provide support. The two planes had fall back and returned to base after they developed engine problems, leaving four of them to come to support Dragon 1. But as they arrived, they found that Dragon 1 had shot down six of the Empire Dragons and were under attack by the last dragon. Using the sun as cover and the element of surprise, he had two of his planes engage the unaware dragon, each making a high side gun pass. Their new 20mm autocannons proving very effective in tearing into the shielded dragon into shreds. Gold lead, gold four, red smoke spotted. Suddenly his comms crackled. Repeat, red. Crap. Legos craned his head around the cockpit, peering out of the glass, looking around for smoke that caused as he saw new tendrils of red smoke drifting out from a patch in the sea of trees. Red smoke meant that the ground forces had encountered a hero, while blue smoke indicated enemy troops. All gold units vector in over the marked location and stand by to provide close air support, Legos ordered as he tilted his flight stick, turning his AF-1 Cobra towards the red-colored smoke drifting out of the sea of trees. Lieutenant Joseph watched as the red smoke from the smoke grenade clustered at the top of the forest canopy, wondering if air support up there would be able to see it. They comms were unable to get through the forest canopy, and the bloody hero had turned up while they were in the middle of setting up traps for him. Barks of M1 mage locks erupted all around him as the platoon fired at the glowing target. The sheer amount of firepower kept the hero at bay as he raised his magic power to the maximum, making the surrounding trees and plant life smoking from the heat of his aura. 
Out of the corner of his eye, Lieutenant Joseph noted one of the Isagis were dragging a wounded Marine back into cover. He turned and yelled, Medic! Tend to the wounded Marine! The RPG teams load thermobaric rockets, Lieutenant Joseph yelled. Give that son of a witch hell! The rocket teams quickly reloaded with thermobaric rockets in their launchers, swapping out the heat, high-explosive anti-tank rockets with rockets coated with red band on the warhead. The hero tossed a few high-energy beams which scorched the trees and exposed flesh, making the marines cry out in pain and anger. The traces of the MG-1s were like lasers, following the hero's frantic movements as he weaved in and out from the trees, using them as cover. But when the hero exposed himself to attack, several lines of traces converged on him, sending him tumbling backwards as the force of the 338 rounds hammered him silly. Dante dodged another line of sparking thunderstone when they were thrown his way. He panted and raised both his sore arms, seeing bruises forming, toting his arms blue-black. What kind of demon sorcery is this? He sneaked a quick peek behind the battered tree that he was at, trying to pick up the individual sparkasters hiding in the undergrowth. But the demon-cursed casters were like forest sprites, their bodies blending into the surroundings almost perfectly. Cursed mortals! Think your demonic powers are strong? Dante's ever-present smile changed to an expression of pure seriousness. Let me show you the difference between God's powers and demons. There, one hundred, enemy behind the tree. The RPG team crouched down while the assistant pointed into where the hero was hiding at. Clear. One round away, the marine with the RPG fired, sending the smoking dart flaming away over the tree where the hero was behind, and seconds later, a sharp crack resounded, and the tree trotted over, with smoke and splinters flying all over the place. Dante was praying to the sun god when suddenly his heightened senses heard a whoosh, and the tree was suddenly exploded, and the pressure wave slammed into him. His magic shield fluctuated and howled, but he felt his insides were like a troll had happened him. He rolled away and leaned against the massive tree root. He felt the raw sweetness in his throat as he vomited out a mouthful of dark blood. What? He stared incredulously at the blood in his hand. I was harmed by a minor creature. His aura changed as his temper changed. Lowly, lesser creatures dare hurt my body. He closed his eyes, ignoring the impacts of the thunderstones against the tree root he was under. Sun God, hear me. Creatures bound to the dark arts have risen. Grant me the light to cast the darkness away. Almost immediately his aura in his body growed ever brighter, and the discomfort he felt in his body faded away, and the pain in his arms disappeared. He turned both his arms and saw the bruises had all gone as he narrowed his eyes. I shall not underestimate these lesser creatures' power. Those thundersticks and stones of theirs are clearly way more powerful than I can imagine. It's time to start playing around. Dante started praying again, calling upon the sun god to grant him power in exchange for offerings. Tyria and the rest of Claymore One had moved in textbook flanking maneuver, using cover fire provided by the marines and the crouch next to the tree root, roughly a couple trees away from the hero. Tyria looked at his team and wordlessly mimicked pulling a grenade out and throwing it. The rest of the team nodded, and each dug out a black powder-egg-shaped grenade and held it ready. Tyria gave a nod and raised his fingers, counting down from three to one, and everyone on the count of one pulled the pins and lobbed it hard towards the area where the hero was hiding. 
Six grenades blew out. The safety spoon spun away from the fuse and protecting cover from the fire runes was removed, and the twin rune wafers touched each other and flared up, sending a large spark out and igniting the measured fuse, setting it burning down the tin tube. The six grenades bounced against the semi-soft dirt forest floor and rolled in the different directions, but most of it landed next to the hero who was praying away. The slow-burning fuse smoked and finally reached the main explosive filler in just 4.7 seconds, and the grenades exploded in a confined body of cast-iron grenade and cracked the casing, turning the serrated cast-iron shell into hundreds of fragments, sending them flying in a spherical blast, throwing lethal shrapnel in the immediate vicinity. Dante just finished his invocations when suddenly he heard several soft thumps and opened his eyes and widened in surprise as he recognized the egg-shaped olive-green-colored artifacts rolling around him. Bastards! And the world exploded. Go, go, go! Daria yelled a second after the grenades exploded. They burst out of cover and pushed towards the blasts. In two teams of three, their weapons were up and ready at the charge. Hearing the grenade explosive, Lieutenant Joseph yelled, Cease fire! Cease fire! Section 3 and 4 advance. And the marines of Section 3 and 4 climbed to their feet and fanned out, advancing to where the hero was. Taria stepped over the root of the tree and swung his weapon around, expecting to see the hero. But what was left was just some smoking holes causing by the grenades and dark red patch that looked suspiciously like blood. Check your area, Terry ordered, and the rest quickly spun around, their weapons scanning their surroundings. He crouched over the dark patch of blood, feeding the warmth from the dark liquid in his fingers. He sniffled the substance and nodded. Blood. He's wounded, all right. He's wounded. That means he'll be angry, Terry warned. Be on alert. Rapid footsteps could be heard, and Terry yelled. Marines, watch it. The hero is wounded and hiding somewhere. Keep your eyes open. Contact! The marine yelled and he fired, followed by the rest who saw the fleeing figure in the trees. Up on top of the trees, he's running! Oh! Terrier yelled, chasing off to the shadow. Kill that mother, Farka! Dante growled as he hugged his sides. The sun aura had vanished after taking all that damage and the cursed demonic weapons. Something from those weapons had hurt his side, and he hopped from tree to tree. He felt warm wetness forming at his side. Looking down, he saw he was bleeding and cursed again. Damn, low lives! Dante screamed as the trees around him exploded in thunderstones cast by the demon worshippers. Sun God, give me strength, high of the sun. Suddenly, as Tyria and the marines were chasing the hero, the hero suddenly flashed with an intense glaring brightness that brought all of them to a halt and forcing them to cover their eyes. As the brightness faded, a sudden shockwave followed by a heat wave that slammed everyone backward, and the troops yelled and cursed as they painfully rolled from tumbled back along the forest floor. When Terry recovered, he noted in horror that a huge expanse of the forest had literally been scorched away, leaving behind a large circular clearing with charred ground. Crap! Sarge! he yelled at the marine sergeant. Check your men! Claymore one, report! Daria yelled as he pushed to the edge of the newly formed clearing, feeding waves of superheated air coming from the ground. He saw a glowing figure floating in the middle of the clearing and a huge floating manifestation of divine power in the air, where a glowing eye was now looking down at him. 
Mortals, you will pay for damaging this bup. Thunder yelled, but it was cut short when suddenly several buzzing roars thundered from the sky and streaks of yellowish-red traces hammered into him. Guns, guns, guns! Gilagos yelled as he squeezed his gun trigger, and his whole plane shook wildly from his heavy thumping of the twenty-millimeter gun pods. Twin streaks of traces roared out and intersected directly at the floating figure, the huge-ass eye in the sky, his twenty-millimeter rounds causing smoke and sparks on the figure as he broke off his engagement, allowing the second cobra to line up and make its firing run. Deria yelled in excitement as he saw the cobras swooping in from above, each firing long bursts before breaking away and allowing the next plane in line to fire, sending the hero tumbling in the air. Kill that son of a witch! Legos looped his fighter around, watching his flight wing engage the hero in turns. But suddenly, as the last plane broke away, the hero seemed to pulse brightly, and a beam of ice-searing light ripped out and cut his plane's left wing, gold five into two, sending the plane spiraling down. Mayday, mayday, we got a cobra down. Repeat, cobra down. End of chapter. Chapter 158. How to Kill a Hero the Reno squawked and yells, Cobra down! Gold Five is down! Flight Sergeant Stamford cursed as he stretched his head up, trying to see the action in the skies, but the small opening in the canopy barely allowed him to see anything from the back of Blue Thunder. Damn it! We're getting hit hard up there, Dex said as he looked from the radio set. What do we do now? Pray, Stamford whispered. We can only pray for them to survive. Uncharted forest, scorched ground. Light him up, Lieutenant Joseph yelled as he crouched next to the blackened piece of wood log. He had ordered Section 1 and 2 to continue to head towards the rendezvous point blue, while 3 and 4 engaged the hero hovering in the air, glowing with divine light. The long rat burst of fire roared out from the sides of the orc gunners bracing the MG1s against the fallen trees and firing in long controlled bursts. Bright tracers floated out towards the hero, who raised his arms up and a glowing shield appeared, the bullet impacts leaving behind sparks and red glowing molten lead on the shield surface. A whoosh screamed out from somewhere and a thermobaric rocket slammed into the back of the hero. The thin wafers of fire runes and the nose of the rocket propelled the grenade, collapsed and sending a flaming spark into the explosive filler and ignited, throwing a small cloud of hydrogen, fine aluminum and matter powder mixed into the air. In a split second, the second stage of the fuse ignited, and the fuel-air mixture detonated, rising the immediate temperature to over 1400 degrees Celsius, flash cooking the air. The sudden detonation caused a small vacuum in the atmosphere, and the air rushed into full of void, causing a thundercrack and a blast wave that radiated out in a small sphere. The hero screamed as the blast had hammered him. He arched his back, and blood gushed out from his nose and ears, the bright red starting to contrast against the golden glow of his body. I'll kill you! I'll kill you! His thunderous roar slammed into the surroundings, even over tens of meters away. The men on the ground screamed and yelled as the shock wave from his roar hammered into them, making their internal organs wobble. Tyria barely managed to defend against most of the shock wave made by the hero due to the magic defenses, but he saw a couple marines rolling and moaning in the ash-coated floor as they suffered some internal injuries. How do we farking kill that thing? 
Teria yelled as he quickly cast a healing spell on the wounded marines. Minor heal. Grab the RPG-1, Teria yelled to Hitsu, who sat on the floor with a silly look in his face. Wake the fuck up. Hitsu coughed up some specks of blood out of his hand and climbed to his feet unsteadily, groping around the fallen body of the marine where the RPG-1 was strapped to his back. He unslung the rocket tube, giving the body of the marine a pat on his part and flipped the sights open and inserted a fire rune into the place where the rear of the tube. It was the first time Hitsu had ever fired the RPG-1, in fact. The whole Claymore 1 team was not even trained with the weapon. It was introduced while they were still out on a mission at Fallage, and during the trek home, the marines had helpfully taught them enough to operate and fire the rocket launcher. He aimed the bazooka unsteadily at the rampaging hero, who was throwing sunbeams left and right. He squeezed the trigger, igniting the simple rocket motors, flinging the rocket out in its way to meet the hero. Hitsu grinned weakly as he watched the small black explosive cloud blanketed the hero and dropped spent rocket tube down, before slipping into the darkness. Light Sergeant Lagos twisted his fighter into a low, swooping loop and lowered the throttle, reducing the speed as he lined up his gun for a fly pass. Guns, 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 he roared. His whole plane jerked as a dual 20mm autocannon pods mounted under his wing blasted away. The spent cartridges, almost twice the length of the forefinger, got recycled into the ammunition hopper. The bright tracers chased with Hero and raised the shield to block, and the view changed as Lagos yanked the stick up and to the side, pushing his throttle up. He came up out of an attack run, pulling away from the Hero, and looked up in the rearview mirror and keeping his eyes on the enraged Hero, and saw him starting to pulse brightly. Oh, fark! Lagos yanked the stick to his left, forcing the agile pain into a barrel roll. The hero spat a beam of superheated light energy at him. He clenched his teeth and his neck muscles hard, the G-forces posing down on him, barely dodging the hero's attack. That was close. Legos puffed out as his fighter lengthened the distance away from the hero. How tough is that arsehole? Gold 2 to gold lead, fuel is at 34 and dropping. The radio cackled. Legos quickly glanced down at his fuel gauge and cursed. His fuel was at 36%, and they had to return, or if not, they would not have enough fuel to land. Gold group, all birds, make one last attack run and regroup at sector 4, 9 3, 3, copy. Legos read out the coordinates from the map on his left thigh. Roger, gold lead, lining up for attack run. Legos turned the plane back seeing the sun reflecting off his other two wingmate fighters as they dived down one last time with the guns blazing. Lieutenant Joseph cursed as he heard the voice of comms from the radio man. Crap, the flight boys are out of fuel and will do a last attack before returning to base. He looked at the medics working at the gathered wounded laying low behind the cover of sloping terrain. Sarge, how many still in the combat capable? His platoon sergeant rubbed a smudge of blood over his nose and spat out a globule of blood spit to the side and said, Three, not including you and me and two medics, but all have had some other form of injury. Rap. His first marine command and he got half the platoon in the craps. Stay and fight or run. Sorry, sir, most of the wounded can't move. His platoon sergeant shook his head, and I doubt that we outran that bastard jerking his head towards the hero fighting with the remnants of the men in Claymore 1. Radio men, Lieutenant Joseph called out and reached for the C-shaped receiver. Eagle 1 to Thunder Chief, come in, over. 
with the destruction of the forest, several openings in the canopy had opened, thus allowing some radio signals to get out, and not long HQ replied. Their chief, send. Eagle One taking heavy casualties, requesting support over. Under. Sta- yeah. Crap. Lieutenant Joseph pitched as the receiver back to the radio man, looking out from cover at the maddened hero. What does it take to kill that son of a witch? UNS Singapore Command Bridge. Captain Blake faced and turned the darker and darker as he watched and listened to the reports coming in from the battle with the hero. He looked up at the live-streaming UA video of the battlefield, seeing the eye-catching divine eye of the hero brightly glaring at everyone beneath it. Captain, Eagle One requesting immediate support. They are reporting heavy casualties. The communication officer reported from his station. Orders. Tell them to fall back if they can, Blake ordered. What's the status of the Valkyries? They are roughly thirty minutes out with the 2nd Battalion Eagle Company Platoon 2. Commander Ford replied with the tactical putt table. Gold Group is disengaging from the hero on RTB. Hmm, that's still too long, Blake replied. Status of the main guns? Ford turned and looked at Blake with surprised expression on his face. Sir, I don't think that's a good idea. We can launch a missile strike instead. You saw what the 20 millimeters and the RPGs can do to that thing, Blake countered. Now, status. As of the last maintenance report, engineering and armament cleared it for active duties. Ford replied as he pulled up the records. It can be fired, but not advisable. Bring it up online, Blake instead said. Warn the city. Aye, aye, Captain, Ford replied reluctantly. Weapon officer, power up the main guns. Aye, powering up the main guns. The weapons officer of the day yelled back excitedly, sounding the main guns alert. A sudden harsh blare rang out three times, signaling and warning the ship for firing of the main guns. Gunners, supposed to be on duty manning the guns, jerked up in shock as they heard the blare of the intercom rang out. Perhaps the main guns, this is not a drill. Repeat, this is not a drill. The gun captain yelled, on it, move, move. He hustled to the gun crew in action, and they dashed up from the ready room and into the main gun control room. Check all systems. Aye, power systems are green. Reactor holding good. Loader is green. Targeting is online. The gun captain nodded and reports came in. Weapons, gun one, systems all green. Out in the city, it was already late afternoon, and most of the inhabitants were preparing to wind down for the day. Children had had finished their afternoon classes, were playing around at the fountains and the green parks, when suddenly a siren rolled out. Attention citizens, attention citizens, the main gun will be firing. All citizens are to take shelter and keep calm. Repeat, the main gun will be firing. All citizens are to take shelter and keep calm. Police and security officers dashed around the streets, warning the citizens to stay indoors, and cover their ears as the public broadcast system continued to broadcast warning messages in both English and common tongue. The citizens were confused and frightened, but they followed the advice and warnings as best they could, hunkering down under the tables or beds and covering their ears as they wondered what was going on. Captain, all systems green, the weapons officer replied. Target that uh, thing, Blake ordered. Aye, target locked on. Using the unique radiation given off by the hero's powers, the UAV hovered above the battlefield, helped triangulate targeting data back to the UNS Singapore's firing control computers, 
measuring distance, wind, atmospheric density, pressure, and projectile drop. The servo motors unwind as the massive 180,000 kilogram main gun turret rotated to face the direction of the target. A single rectangular railgun barrel hummed and tilted upwards as it aimed itself. Sir, distance 527.8 kilometers away, minimum impact from the planet's Earth curvature and gravity, the weapons officer reported. Do we have a clear line of firing on the target? Ford asked. Negative. The mountains are blocking. The weapons officer replied. Give me a double shot, Blake ordered. Blow the mountain away for the second fire. Ford looked at Blake in shock. Are you sure? Do it! Next so. Blake spoke sharply. I, Captain, Ford sighed inwardly. Prep the gun one for firing solution. Prepping gun one for firing solution. The weapons officer intoned. Gun one loaded and standing by. The energy crystals harvested from the dead mutant silver dragon were refined into a stable form of liquid which was stored into a battery-like canister. The gunners in gun one rammed a canister into the converter generator which hungrily sucked the refined crystals into a pure electrical energy, charging up the capacitors. As the firing solution was calculated and keyed in, both gun turrets tilted up to the same elevation and hummed, waiting to be fired. Captain, are you sure about this? Ford asked. Blowing up a mountain, you might cause some irreversible ecological consequences. How was that? Blake replied, shaking his head. We need to stop that thing right now. Fire the main guns. End of chapter. Chapter 159. Dante's Inferno. UNS Singapore, Gun 1. The Huvei Li Shen Series 9 dual 155mm rail cannon hummed as energy flowed into its rectangular conductive rails, built and designed by the weapon tech department of one of China's high-tech firms. The older ships like the UNS Singapore were armed with Huvei Li Shen Series 9 railguns, which were state-of-the-art during the ship's commission. Now the latest frigates and cruisers of the United Nations of Mankind mounted the latest Li Shen Series 14 and above models. But that does not mean that the Series 9 was any weaker than its more recently developed counterparts. Heat-dispensing radiator shields popped out of the armored turret body as the weapon readied itself for the command to be fired. Inside the turret, autoloaders rotated the ready ammunition stalls and selected two streamlined armor-piercing fin-stabilized discarded sabot projectiles, each weighing over three kilograms. They dropped onto the loading hoist, which carried the shell into the rear breech of each of the railguns, and an automatic rammer shoved both projectiles into the respective guns. A clamp gripped the armature, covering the projectiles in place, as the rammer rotated and locked the gun breech, securing the weapon. All of this only took five seconds to be completed, while the gun crews double-checked their consoles and switches that everything was operational. Fire the main guns. The weapons officer jabbed the firing key, and a split second later, the left barrel of the gun roared. The projector was tossed out by the magnetic fields that hit Mark 18 within a second, causing a vacuum tear in the very fabric of the atmosphere. The sonic boom scoured off the loose particles off the exposed hull of the UNS Singapore, and as the shock blast hit the colony seconds later, it was like a 7.5 on the Richter scale magnitude earthquake. Roofs rattled, windows broke, and any loose items fell and shattered throughout the colony. 
The people huddled under the cover and screamed while the unlucky ones had their eardrums ruptured. Those on board the UNS Singapore barely felt the shockwave, only hearing a massive thumping as the ship's internal sound and shockwave proofing held. The armor-piercing fin stabilized a scarlet Sabo projectile screamed through the atmosphere, taking 0.19 seconds to bury itself against the snow-covered peaks of the Sawtooth Mountain and exploded. The peak vanished and collapsed, raining tons of rock and snow down the slopes. Seconds later, the roar of the explosion swept away over the colony, creating more screams of fear and terror amongst the civilians. The public broadcast system bled again, warning the population for a second imminent firing of the main guns, and the people panicked more as they quickly hid and took shelter again. UNS Singapore Command Bridge Holy Mother of God! The bridge crew looked stunned at the destruction wrought by the main gun fire. Back at your stations, Ford barked. Status. Stand by. The weapons officer looked readily pale and his fingers trembling slightly while he checked the gun crew. All systems normal. Heat levels still within tolerance levels. Gun one auto heat dispensers are functioning normally. Ford turned and gave Blake a disapproving look. He knew the effects of firing the main gun in atmospheric environments at, as it was done, live firing exercises on barren planets before. Blake stared back unflinchingly at Ford and said, Ensure that the Eagle One knows we are firing at his vicinity. Make sure that they take cover and precautions they could. Aye, Captain. Ford sighed and turned to his slack-jawed communicator officer. Contact Eagle One. Make sure that they are prepared to run the cover for the main gun impact. Aye, XO, the command officer jolted back to life and started messing around with the comms control, raising Eagle One on the radio. Eagle One confirms danger close. Warn the population again, Blake said as he waited for the comms officer to do her work and waited, looking at the main screen watching the clouds of snow and rock dust drifting down the shattered mountain peak. Lock onto the hero. Blake said finally after a mentally ensured that there was enough warning and time was given to everyone to take shelter. Fire! Another supersonic boom ripped across the skies. Uncharted forest 291 kilometers away from Sorbtooth Mountain Pass. Lieutenant Joseph screamed at the men to take cover. Danger close! Danger close! Get into cover! His men yelled at each other, shouting to those still fighting the hero. The hero hovered in place, smiling at the panicking and dying soldiers. His body was constantly recovering from the effects of the sun god's eye. He forcefully held onto his link to the sun god's divine powers, protecting the link from the cursed demon explosive spells and thundersticks. He gloated at the creatures stumbling away from him in urgency, feeling the terror in their eyes and feeding in the fear of them. Is this what the ancient gods felt like? To easily dominate man and creatures. He gave out a bark of laughter, feeling the adrenaline rush and the endorphins released from his brain made him high. <laughs> Dante laughed joyfully. Fear me, bow before me, worship me, for I am a god. Something slammed into Dante, and the sun god's eye closed, vanishing from the mortal world as if it did not exist at all. A sharp crack of thunder, a hundred, no, a million times louder than the roar of a rifle lagged by his eighteen seconds behind the projectile that slammed directly into the unaware hero. 
The Marines and Claymore One hunkered down under cover, both physically and magically, screaming and yelling at the blast wave overloaded their bodies, battering and tossing them like a ship in a storm. Weakened trees were torn up and unrooted, crashing down as the ground shook from the passing of the low-flying projectiles traveling at Mark 18. Dante screamed as his mind could not comprehend what was happening. The terror he was not so long since the first gotten his divine powers came rushing in. He felt his heart and his back of his throat could barely feel any part of his body, only vaguely seeing something dark nesting at his penny. He barely felt the heat causing it by the friction of the air against his body as he suddenly traveled the 5,963 meters per second with a third of the projectiles he'd buried in his abdomen. His skin turned red and peeling off of him as the air scraped the remaining clothes and skin off and the heat burned his hair away and a flesh of cooked flesh exposing his bones. Before his brain could process the dire situation of 0.5 seconds later, he had the projectile slammed deep into the side of the mountain range, sending up a mushroom cloud up into the air and send pieces of rock and stone flying hundreds of meters high. Blue Thunder roared in fright and tucked in his head under his wing together with his crew as they huddled together, using Blue Thunder's body as cover from the passing railgun projectile shockwave. The men yelled and cried as the ground shook terribly and Blue Thunder felt true fear for the first time in his life. I, I, I think I wet myself. Gold leader Sergeant Legos cursed as he fought against a sudden turbulence while the other planes in his flight rolled and dived in the air. Crap! Legos cursed as he saw one of his planes impacted against the sea of trees and did a cartwheel before sinking into the leaves. Cobra down! We got another cobra down! Valkyrie 1 and 2 barely managed to stay in the air as the shockwave from the railgun projectile passed by them several kilometers away. Both ships hit the air turbulence as supersonic waves rolled over them. Greg the goblin screamed and shrieked as he held on for dear life in the holes of Valkyrie 1. The stench of vomit and voided bowels remained with him as his time on board the goblin's raiding ships. Bad memories, bad memories, no stinking manies, no. UNS Singapore, Command Bridge, status, Blake roared out as the UAV suddenly flickered and the no signal found error message popped up. Get that back online. Aye, aye, Captain. The frantic crew quickly jumped into action, trying the ways to bring back the UAV. Captain, Gun 1 report systems holding, Ford reported. Energy crystal battery currently left 15% power, temperature holding at yellow levels, but heat sinks and dispensers are still functioning. Blake nodded. Load the guns and have the crews on standby. I want to know what happened at the ground. Sir, no response from Eagle 1, the comms officer yelled. Valkyrie flight reports a mushroom cloud sighted in the vicinity of Eagle 1, ETA 22 minutes. Air Force Command reports Gold Squadron has lost one Cobra due to the shockwave. The comms officer reported again as reports from each department flooded in. They are requesting SAR, team. Have Valkyrie flight vector over the SAR duties once they dropped off the troops, Blake ordered. Captain, Upper Deck 2A, 4B and 5A reporting warping from the after effects of the main gun firing. Ford looked up from his tablet. I've ordered crews down to do structural checks and supporting bracing on the structural frames just in case. Got it, Blake nodded. After this, get engineering to do a whole superstructural sweep of the ship. Check if there is any issues with the ship's structure. 
Aye, Captain, Ford replied. Damage and casualty reports are coming in from the city. Bad, Blake asked as he eyed the beeping light on his computer and ignored it as it appeared to be a call from the princess. Very, Ford sighed. I did warn you, Captain. Your popularity rating's gonna drop. Who cares about popularity ratings? Blake raised a frustrated eyebrow. I care about making sure a threat like that rabid hero gets put down once and for all. Sirs, UAV back online. The UAV operator yelled from his station, putting it back up to the main screen. The main screen flickered to life as the view started panning, showing the trail of destruction caused by the railgun projectile tearing right over the canopy of the uncharted forest, leaving behind a straight line of broken trees. The image panned towards the circular clearing before it showed the dust cloud still drifting over the mountain face, with the imagery switched to infra, showing a big blob of right in the bottom of the dust cloud. The view panned downward, showing figures in the forest, some moving while others barely moved laying in various poses on the floor. Think we got him? Ford asked. What does the radiation sensor tell us? Blake asked, the UAV operator. Nothing except the background radiation and very low levels of Mu radiation around the surrounding areas. Mu radiation was the classification Dr. Sharon gave for the magic radiation given off by the hero and all forms of magic. Just that the amount of radiation the hero gave off was hundreds and thousands of times higher compared to normal magic, making Dr. Sharon able to come up with a method of detection. Vector Valkyrie 2 to the impact site, Blake said after a while. I want a visual confirmation of a kill. Yes, sir. The comms officer spoke into her mic and directed the flight of marines to the new headings. ETA 31 minutes, sir. Blake nodded and looked at the blinking light flashing nonstop on his console and sighed, keying the accept button. Yes, Blake! The princess' panicky voice came through loudly, making some of the crew look his way. What's going on? Blake hit the headset key and donned on a headset, cutting off the princess's voice from the console speakers. Something we had to do. What is something we had to do? Do you know how many damages are in the city now? Shireen yelled into his ear. It was the first time he had ever heard a yell. Oh, no, no, that was the second, as he thought back to the time she invaded his bunk. We got calls from many people about being wounded. Are we still required to be taking shelter? Yes, Blake replied, for at least one hour. Do you know where the fires are all over the city? Shireen said, her voice slightly cracked. Hmm, I can think of someone who's probably in an inferno right now. End of chapter. Chapter 160. End of a hero. Uncharted Forest Ground Zero. The sharp angular lines of Valkyrie 1 roared in, banking sharply as the tilted its rotors swerved forward, slowing the heavy craft and bringing the Valkyrie to a hover over the blackened ground. His undercarriage bays swung open as hydraulics and four stubby landing gears deployed. The powerful wind from the dual rotors blew the green smoke away and kicked up the storm of ashes from the scorched forest. Before the Valkyrie landing jacks touched the ground, the rear ramps dropped open, and the ship settled down gently. The marines charged down the ramp and formed up a short distance away from the broken baton looking officer wearing a beret and another person with visible wounds dressed in leather armor and a tactical vest. The second Valkyrie did a single circuit around the destroyed forest and gave a big wag of its wings before it tilted its rotors and swung to the rear as it flew off towards dispersing mushroom cloud in the distance. Sir, 
Sergeant Arvin of the 2nd Battalion, Eagle Company, Platoon 2, with two sections at your command, sir. A slightly ashen-faced marine with three stripes on his sleeve yelled over the slowly powering down rotors. Lieutenant Joseph, this is Specialist Sergeant Tyrrier from the 101st. Lieutenant Joseph gave his introduction and raised eyebrow as his slight stench of sourness drifted over him. Are you okay, son? Um, yes, sir. Arvin looked slightly embarrassed. Air turbulence, he gave a simple explanation. Ah! Joseph smiled and gave out a bark of laughter. Well, it was pretty dark down here, too. Relax, I'm no longer Lord General, just a simple lieutenant. Yes, sir. Arvin grinned back. His nervousness tension was raiding away. I got medical supplies on board and medics standing by. Good. I have need of your medics. Joseph's face turned grim. There's a lot of wounded this way. Medics on me. Arvin turned and yelled at the gawking marines fresh off the Valkyrie. The rest unload the supplies of the bird. Joseph led them towards a small defile where dozens of men laid in rows with dried blood staining their uniforms. Most of them suffered internal injuries and broken bones. We need to medevac more critical wounded out. Eight dead and seven badly wounded, Joseph said, and I have no idea how it is for the rest of the slaves. Our radio is dead. We got a radio contact from them earlier, Arvin replied as he watched the medics rush towards the wounded. They had several casualties, but thankfully no deaths. But there are broken bones and burst eardrums from the weaker ones. Joseph nodded. Well, that's one worry off my back. Any news on the hero? Is he killed? Arvin shrugged and took it towards the dust cloud. If he's alive, he should be somewhere in there. And I doubt anyone could even live through that, even if he is a god. Tyria gave a snort. Varker is harder to kill than a cockroach, and what the hell was that spell? I'm not too sure either. Arvin gave a worried look. The humans have such powerful weapons hidden. Joseph frowned. I guess they have a secret cause kept hidden away after all. The three soldiers turned and watched the dust cloud hovering over the distance, each of their minds wondering to how much more hidden away powerful weapons the humans had at their disposal that could wipe out an entire mountain or even a god. Uncharted Forest Impact Zone Valkyrie 1 dipped its nose down as it entered the dust cloud, its rotors causing the smoke and dust to swirl away as it came to a hover before the massive pole against the side of the mountain face, its powerful forward spotlight searching the insides of the dust cloud. Lieutenant Peter struggled slightly with the controls as the rock dust interfered slightly with his rotors, making the Valkyrie sluggish as the filters tried their best to filter out the air and the turbopop engines. Come on, baby. He spun the Valkyrie on its axis and slowly and expertly landed, the rear rams dropping open and Greg the Goblin yelled angrily, Stinky monies, you mess up my deck, choo-choo, go kill yourselves. The sickened marines ignored Greg's jibs and spread out over the rear of the Valkyrie. The dust cloud hovering in the air blocked some sunlight, making the late afternoon seem like evening. Lieutenant Rathia looked around his surroundings with a sense of dread. The dust cloud had effectively blinded them as they could only see a short distance away, while the air was chock full of rock dust, making his nose and his throat itch. Everyone buttoned up their uniforms and pulled the collar up over their nose as they tried to breathe in as little as possible of the dust. Beams of light stabbed out visibly, dropping as the sky grew dark inside as the sun slowly started to set. Sir, out the hole, 
Someone yelled in front, and Lieutenant Rathia quickly jogged over, and a dark ball loomed up before them. Sir, up here. The Marine shone up his torch and towards the surface of the cliff walls, and the beam barely reached the edge of the opening with cracks radiating in all directions. What's that? Ten, twenty meters, Lieutenant Rathia gauged. I need a rope and climbing gear. The men settled down around the wall with those who were better at climbing scaling the walls, easily finding the cracks and footholds on the surface. Soon, a yell came down from above and a rope was dropping down. Section one up, two stays there, Lieutenant Rathia ordered. I want Section two to be an alert, watch our backs and also keep an eye on our ride out of here. With that, he started to climb the rope, and before long, he hoisted his body into the newly created cave panting with the effect from the dust. He took his bottle out and washed his mouth and nose before wetting his throat. What do we have here? The men all gathered up and shone their lights into the gloomy darkness, the beams unable to penetrate that far deep into the cave hall. The lamps were made with flash ruins, powered by mana stones and reflected by a simpler reflector surrounding the flash rune. All ready, let's go. They advanced in loose two-file formation, as the tunnel was large enough for up to four people to walk side by side. The rock tunnel had cracks all over the surface and continued for over fifty meters before the tunnel widened into a sort of circular room. Look, the men whispered, as the air beams of the light played over the shape playing against the walls. They advanced on alert, their weapons at the ready, and they spread out, giving room for the rest to enter the room their lights and weapons all focused on the only thing inside the cave. It's the hero! Oh, crap! Farker's still alive! You, Lieutenant Rathia, patted the nearest marine. Go check. Um, yes, sir. The unlucky marine sighed at his luck and gathered his courage before stepping forward to where the hero was, while the other snickered at him. Sir, he looks dead. If not, he wishes he was dead. Lieutenant Rathia went forward and observed the body. Upon closer inspection, the hero was actually half-buried into the wall, with parts of his body missing. What appeared to be the upper torso was what was left of his arm where right arm was missing at the shoulder. The head portion looked like an over-barbecued round ham and a thick layer of char and pinkish meat underneath the cracked skin. Most of the skin was gone, and his flesh was either stripped away or charred black with some grayish roasting bones sticking out. He was barely even recognized as a person, as what was left behind was just a vague black shape. Is that even a person? One of the marines commented as he shone his light on the body, with less than half of the body barely intact. Look, what's that? A glint of light could be seen in the body from the flashlights and the marines as they played over the body. Don't touch it with your bare hands, someone warned. Lieutenant Rathia removed his bayonet and poked around the body where the glint was seen. Could be just a piece of projectile left. His sword bayonet suddenly spoke something hard and with any hesitation, Lieutenant Rathia stabbed in and jerked, ripping the charred flesh open and something fell out with a clink on the rock floor. Suddenly, the body gasped and the chest rose up and down. A pair of eyes with startling eye whites opened wide as the blackened and scarred charcoal lump. Um, it suddenly gasped for air and scared the crap out of the rings as they all jumped in fright. Fark! Everyone fired their weapons almost at the same time, cursing and swearing at the suddenly alive body. Dive! Fark! 
The roars of gunfire in an enclosed area deafened the men. Lieutenant Rothia was yelling, Cease fire! Cease fire! The gunfire slowly died down, while one marine gave one last shot at the spasming body. Cease fire! Lieutenant Rothia glared at the marine, who gave an innocent black look. God damn it! He waved the smoke away while the men kept the weapons trained on the hero, cursing at the hero for scaring them and wondering how in the hell he was still alive after all of this. Rathia noticed that the hero seemed to be struggling desperately to move the remaining stub on his only hand with a melted flesh towards the object on the floor. He glanced down and with his gloved hand he picked up the strange crescent-shaped object and shone his light on it. The hero moaned out, his vocal cords had burned away. His left arm, ending in a melted blackened stub, waved desperately at Rathia. Rathia frowned as he eyed the hero before looking carefully at the object, and found that it was actually just a part of a large piece of something, only that it was broken into a crescent shape. Complex runes covered the surface coated with bits of overcooked hero parts on it. Rathia grimaced and it before something clicked in his mind. He looked back at the hero, who appeared to be shriveling up as he tried to grasp the object in his hand with his handless arm. Is this the divine artifact of the sun god? He waved the artifact in front of the hero, who opened his lipless mouth, and a moan came out. Well, Mr. Hero, no more artifact for you. The body of the hero suddenly seemed to sink in, and the white eyes of the hero turned dull and yellow, and soon he stopped its desperate movements his head resting down as the ruined chest and his arm stretched out towards Rathia. Is he dead? Someone asked, using his muzzle and gave the body a poke. That's dead, right? Mind the place, Rathia said, as he held the artifact at arm's length. Give me a rope pouch. He gestured at one of the climbers and dropped the artifact into the sling bag. Use all your explosives and bring this place down. The men nodded and checked their gear, removing claymore mines and grenades, they stacked the explosives against the tunnel walls, into the cracks and crevices. Once done, they unrolled the fuse lines and gathered at the edge of the cave. All right, let's get out of here and blow this place up, Rathia said, and they climbed back down to the waiting men who were alert due to the gunfire that they heard. Once safely down, Rathia gave the command. Set the fuses, we should have thirty to forty seconds to get clear. Blow it up! Let this be his tomb. End of chapter. And that, my friends, concludes this video. I hope that you enjoyed. If you did, please consider supporting the author from the link down below. Otherwise, if you wish to support this channel, there are numerous ways to do so, like liking, subscribing, and possibly even becoming a patron. Otherwise, the easiest way would be to share. And until the next video, I hope that you all have a good one, and I'll see you then. Cheers.